Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. All in salute, bound in jail. Hey! And nobody to go there, bail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, my Lord, hold on. At our live events, we open up the stage for people to share stories about their life experiences. Equality, tolerance, and a deep respect for humanity are among the moth's deepest values. And today, we wanted to share a recent story that's reflective of those values. We're going to hear from Barbara Collins Bowie. Barbara shared this just a couple of months ago at a main stage show I hosted in New York City. The theme of the night was Give Me Liberty. My brother and I were born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi during Jim Crow. In 1961, my brother got involved with Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. He became a freedom rider. Well, I loved my brother, and I always wanted to do everything he did, but I did not know what a freedom rider was. But my brother was 19, and I was only 13. So this actually became a very serious movement for him because the freedom riders were challenging segregation in interstate transportation across the South. And so they were the colored-only, white-only signs and the separation in bathrooms and, and uh, restaurants and water fountains and all of that. And um, so my, um, this was very dangerous for them as well because the Ku Klux Klan did not want this to happen. So they were getting beat up and arrested and all of that. 
Well, my young friends and I um, heard about the uh, protest and the sit-ins. So we thought, oh, okay, we can do this uh, and could have fun doing it. Um, because there were, it wasn't that we didn't understand what was going on, but um, there, we would be able to go into restaurants and shops that said whites only. So, for instance, there was a restaurant in our neighborhood that we used to go to almost every day after school. But on one side it said colored only, on the other side it said whites only. Well, the colored side was kind of small. It had a couple of booths, uh, a jukebox, we could put a nickel in there and hear our music, and a, a counter. And if we wanted to get something to eat, there was a window there with a doorbell. So we'd go up to that window. Uh, we could order hot dogs, french fries, and sodas on paper plates and cups. But as you stand in there at that window, you could see the other side. And the other side was big with lots of tables, white tablecloths and settings, and white people were seated and being served dinner. So this was wrong. This was how we were treated. And uh, we understood that. So because when my mother would take us shopping for school clothes, the first thing she'd say to me is, Barbara, go use the bathroom. And I'm like, Mama, I already used it. Go use the bathroom again. And I didn't understand that. So until we were downtown one day in the store, and she had picked out a few items, and I had to use the bathroom. And she got very upset with me because we had, she had to put those things back. She, we had to leave that store and go to a feeder street where there were colored businesses, use the bathroom, go back to the store, and start over again. And while we were in the store, she had to know my sizes because they would not allow us to try on clothes or shoes. And um, so, and, you know, if you bought something that was too small or, or too big, they would not allow us to bring it back. So when we would leave the, the store, Mama would grab my hand. <laughs> and I said, Mama, I'm a big girl. You don't have shut up, gal. And uh, when a white person would approach us, we had to get off the sidewalk and let them by. Well, Mama had to pull me <laughs> off the sidewalk. And so I did understand uh, what was going on, how we were being treated, and that it was wrong. I just didn't understand what the civil rights movement or what the freedom riders could do about it because this was our lives. This was how we were raised. This was how it was. This was what we accepted, you know. And um, I didn't know, I didn't think that there was anything that could be done about it until uh, several years later, one day I was uh, coming home from downtown uh, with my friends. And um, 
I was going up my street. My house was on the corner. So as I was walking up, everybody was saying, Bobby, Bobby, you need to get home. Your mom got sick, and she was taken to the hospital. And so first of all, I'm like, hospital? We never went to the hospital. Mama always had home remedies. So, you know, I ran home, and I tried to find someone to take me, and I couldn't. And so I ran up to the hospital And uh, when I got there, Mama was um, sitting in the waiting room, the emergency room, uh, with a friend who had brought her there. And uh, she was very distraught. She looked like she was going to pass out. And uh, she was sweaty, clammy, and she had a cold paper towel on her head. And she said, I'm trying to keep from vomiting again. And her friend told me, you know, she had vomited a wash pan full of blood. And I'm like, I didn't believe that. This is a wash pan. And, you know, so I said, well, how long have you guys been here? And he said, we've been here since about two o'clock. And I looked and it was about 530. So I went up to the desk and I said, you know, my mama's been here since two. She needs to see the doctor. She needs to lie down. Uh, and the young lady said, very rudely, um, we don't have a bed for your mother, and there are other people here who need to see the doctor before your mother. So all I could do was go and sit down and wait with them. And as I'm sitting there, I'm seeing people being called up to see the doctor. Now, some of them might have been there (laughs) before me, but Most of them were coming in after, and they were being called. They were all white. So about 9.30 or so, they called Mama. And um, I said, wow, I was glad. I said, she can lie down. She'll see the doctor taken in the treatment room. So we're waiting for the doctor, and um, the nurse came in with the wheelchair. (laughs) And uh, she said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to put your mother outside the door for a while because we have someone else who needs to see the doctor. And I was like, no, my mama's been here since 2 o'clock. She needs to see the doctor. Well, I'm a teenager, so they ignored me. And uh, so when they went to get her up, she vomited. And uh, she almost filled that room with blood. So now nurses and doctors are coming from everywhere. And... um, She needed blood transfusions and all of that. And uh, they took her up to the fifth floor. So my brother came, and um, we went up to the fifth floor looking for Mama. And as I was passing by this treatment room, I heard a burst of laughter coming out. And I looked through the little crack, and uh, doctors and nurses, and I said, that's where Mama is, because no matter what, was going on or whether she was sick or whatever, Mama always had something funny to say or do to make you laugh. And so they took her to 501, and we're waiting outside the room to go in to see her. I wanted to hug Mama. I wanted to say, I love you. The doctor came out. And uh, he said, it's very late. We're trying to get her admitted. Why don't y'all go home and come back the next day? I don't want to leave. I want to see Mama. I want to say I love you because we were a family who never said that to one another. 
I never remembered saying that to my mama. And, and, but he wouldn't let us in. So we left. And the very next morning we came back, she was critical. So we were waiting outside her room again and um, waiting to go in and see her, wanted to say I love you. And the doctor came out and he said, um, we're preparing your mother for surgery. And so we couldn't go in again. And so when they were rolling her out on the stretcher, I could see just a glimpse of her face between their bodies. And uh, her eyes were swollen and red, and she had tears. And I just got this big, hard ball right in the middle of my chest. And we went down to the second floor waiting for her to come out of surgery. And we waited and waited and waited. And finally the doctor came out and he said, I'm sorry, your mother didn't make it. And I just burst into tears and I cried and I cried and I cried. I cried for days. But it was at that moment that I realized what that civil rights movement was all about. I realized why those freedom riders were challenging the colored only, white only signs and going to restaurants. And I even realized why we uh, went in to do sit-ins and, and, and protest. This movement was about our lives This movement was about equality. This movement was about our life and death. That was Barbara Collins Bowie. Barbara was born in 1947 in Jackson, Mississippi. At the age of 13, Barbara took inspiration from her brother by joining the civil rights movement. She later became a licensed vocational nurse, a published poet, and today, Barbara continues to engage her civil rights journey through the Dr. Bowie Foundation Freedom Riders Passing the Torch, an effort to encourage future generations to use the stories of the Freedom Riders and maintain the pursuit of freedom, justice, and racial equality. Earlier this year, Barbara was also elected as the first black city councilwoman of Kirby, Texas. When we reached out to Barbara, she was moved to tears that we were going to use her story on today's episode. She told us how she hoped her story could be a reminder of how much we have to lose by going backward. That she, the Freedom Riders, and all the civil rights activists of those times had fought to get us so far, but that the effort to preserve their progress now relies on us. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, They're better than we are. They're better than we were 
on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Racist graffiti and a possible bomb threat forced the evacuation of more than 100 Washington State University students from their residence hall in the middle of the night Monday. Correspondent Emily Schwing has more. Just before 10 p.m. Monday night, WSU police got a report of graffiti in a residence hall. Then they got two more. Someone had carved swastikas into the walls, one including the word bomb with a time etched underneath. WSU's assistant police chief Steve Hansen says that was interpreted as a veiled bomb threat. So the building was evacuated. Classes started at WSU on Monday. Hansen says that's also when some places started serving alcohol. And so, you know, best case scenario, somebody who was, you know, had something to drink and thought it would be funny to do that. Hansen says the worst case scenario is that the graffiti is racially motivated. This spring, students at Evergreen State College erupted in protests over race. University of Oregon students marched at a rally to denounce hate earlier this month. I'm Emily Schwing reporting. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn, because knowledge is power. It's schoolhouse rocking, but you're all about on your favorite the fresh coat of paint at Bolgen Middle School isn't about upkeep. It's to cover up the racist and hate-filled vandalism done to the school. You're speechless. You just can't believe it. You know, it's, it's just, uh, it's disgusting. Kevin Schumacher, the lead custodian at the school, was the first to discover the graffiti as he came to work this morning. Everything from swastikas to the N-word and other white supremacist symbols like the KKK. They got in here with a pry bar or something, got it to pry open, busted the bolts. Roseville police say the five teenage boys, all of them white, broke into the school from this door. That got them into the gym, which they vandalized with the fire extinguisher. They then went on to graffiti the locker room and a back office, even breaking windows. And there was more. Spray painted some pretty um, hateful things and some derogatory things on the portables in the back part. Lieutenant Doug Blake with Roseville PD says the graffiti was significant and extensive as well as incredibly offensive. If you take on face value though what was put up here and what was painted here, I think it's sufficient in and of itself to say this was uh, one of the worst crimes, that w something that we just don't tolerate on any level. Lieutenant Blake says the five juveniles do not live in the area. They were identified by police based on previous police encounters. Police found some of the stolen property and the paint cans when they made the arrest. But for Schumacher, who spent the whole day cleaning up the campus, his bigger concern was that the racist, hateful messages came from young kids. Where are they getting this from? Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. I'm Carlin Bills. And I'm Jesse Nguyen. And we're both going to be seniors at Garfield High School next year. Let's give them a little background first. What is Garfield? Factors. Everybody who comes out of there is a somebody. Bulldog 74, top dogs. Great location for all diverse families. <laughs> more diverse than where I went to high school. Uh, yeah, definitely more diverse than the school I went to. Okay, so now you know a little bit about what people on the streets of Seattle think about Garfield. Let's see how that matches up with the history of Garfield. 
Garfield was founded in 1923 in the Central District, which is a historically black neighborhood, and that has a lot to do with the redlining districts. And Jesse, why don't you explain what redlining is? Well, the Seattle Municipal defines it as a discriminatory practice targeted at African Americans and others of color, by which banks, insurance companies, and other institutions refused or limited loans, mortgages, and insurance within specific geographic areas. That sounds awful. So basically you're saying these people of color in Seattle couldn't buy homes or anything in specific areas of the city because they are reserved for the white people. Yep. The thing is, though, the central district is rapidly being gentrified. And on top of that, a lot of white students like me are coming from different neighborhoods just to take AP classes. I actually took four last year. And I've learned that the program isn't really inclusive. You're right. I remember back in, what, fourth grade, I took the test. My elementary school, it was down in Othello, and that is a very person-of-color-oriented neighborhood. It's full of Vietnamese populations, full of Ethiopian populations, and there's just so many different experiences, different people, different feelings that were, I guess, intrinsic to who I was. But when I got like placed into APP, I was thrust from that environment, that rich culture and history that I had into... Washington Middle School, and I was suddenly surrounded by white people everywhere, and I had to um, change a lot of my mannerisms, because they didn't fit in with um, a lot of what I saw there, and I felt so lost and um, scared, and I was so uncomfortable being there, and I've learned how to, I guess, maneuver in the AP program, but not a lot of people do. And so the system doesn't just start at high school. We've realized that it's kind of predetermined. It all starts with a test. Phyllis Fletcher, Garfield class of 1990 and managing editor of the Northwest News Network, shares her experience testing into the program. When I was in uh, kindergarten, um, I was uh, tested for Seattle's so-called gifted programs which then were called Horizon and IPP. Mr. Lugo is a history teacher at Garfield, who I might have next year. He has a Latino background, and he has noticed that the segregation starts even early on because the basis to take the test comes from a place of privilege. Many of the students who I run across don't even know that uh, private testing is a thing for APP, and that is something that if you don't have the access, don't have the privilege, don't have the know-how or the savvy to work the system, you're not going to be able to... um, to address in a real way. If the students get accepted into the Accelerated Progress Program, or APP, I know, it's confusing, then they get to go to the middle school that offers it, like I did with Washington. Then the students get tracked into Garfield High School, where they're offered the AP classes. I know I got into the program based off a test I took in elementary school. And Phyllis remembers how that test influenced the classes she got to take at Garfield as a biracial black and white person. If you came in under that program, you, uh, you got enrolled um, in honors classes by default. So you had already been tracked from this test that may or may not reflect um, intelligence, right? Uh, you already are tracked 
into um, these classes that have a completely different set of expectations than so-called regular classes. Even other biracial people, if they looked more black than I did, they would just, they got treated completely differently by the school system. Basically, it can be really hard for kids who weren't tracked into the program to get into an AP class. A lot of students like Rihanna Dale had to work to get into an AP class because she's an African-American student who wasn't tracked at an early age. It was really difficult for me to even be considered put in, like, put in my AP classes. I kind of had to almost not, like, fight my counselor, but I had to, like, constantly reassure him that I was going to do fine in those classes. And, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like there was no support from him either. So basically, the tracking system starts from a young age and divides students. Yep. And this divide is most clearly shown by the racial makeup of the different tracks at Garfield, or in other words, the segregation at Garfield. Mr. Lugo and Phyllis share more of their thoughts. I see a lot of white students. I see a pretty decent amount of girls, which is, uh, which is interesting. Um, but I don't see a super huge amount of uh, students of color. I see some Asian students, which is pretty, uh, again, standard for the APP kind of layout, uh, makeup, sorry. Um, but not a lot of African-American students, not a lot of Latino students, not a lot of Native American students, other students who I know are at the school in different numbers, but certainly weren't represented in my AP classroom. There was, um, uh, let's see, there was one other black girl that I had gone to school with since fifth grade who was also in IPP. Um, There was another black girl whose parents had advocated for her to be in AP classes even though she hadn't been tracked into IPP. And um, almost everybody else was white. There were maybe a couple of Asian kids. And I've noticed how in my AP classes, white students have more support during class, and they tend to dominate the conversation. White AP students, Ivan Dussault and Zach Gates, give us a few more examples. There were definitely some very clear people who took an interest in class, and they were primarily um, upper class, usually white people. there was, I think that noticeably there were probably two white girls, uh, another white boy, and then one Asian girl who spoke the most during that entire class. You know, there there are these terrible stories that I hear from, from people where it's like only kids of color have their hands raised and the teacher says, you know, no one, really? And it sounds like something out of a movie, but it happens. So many people of color don't feel comfortable in these AP classes, like Sion Belgu, a rising junior at Garfield who remembers what it was like being the only black person in her AP world history class. Um, I wasn't comfortable at all. Um, I hated going to that class, like, so much. I was the only person who, like, understood what I was saying, and, um... I just feel like no one could relate to what I would say in that class. All around the world. World nigga no. The parents of the young American man beaten to death in Greece while on vacation are speaking for the first time in an interview that you'll see only on CBS This Morning. Bakari Henderson was his name. He died last month on the Greek island of Zakynthos. Surveillance video captured his final moments as a mob chased him out of the bar and then surrounded him on the street. 
His parents, Jill and Phil Henderson, invited us to their home in Austin, Texas. They told us about the son that they called the hype man of the family. He had big plans and a very positive presence. The name Bakari is very unusual. What does it mean? It means of noble promise. Of noble promise? Mm -hmm. Did he live up to that name? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And he was proud of it. Bakari Henderson showed plenty of promise as a recent graduate of the University of Arizona. At 22 years old, he had already traveled the world. And last month, he was in Greece to get a new venture off the ground. He was there for a photo shoot for his new clothing line that he was launching. Phil had originally said, well, maybe you should, you know, have a plan B. And he said, well, plan B is for people who aren't confident in their plan A. Your response to that was? It's, it's typical Bakari. <laughs> I just laughed. I said, okay. <laughs> Bakari, it seems, was up for a challenge. This video was shot the day before his parents noticed a missed phone call in the middle of the night from the U.S. Embassy. I was thinking maybe, okay, you found his wallet. He's over there and he's trying to get to another country. What's going on? So when I called, and I'm hoping, because it's that night call, you know, yeah. you don't want. So I'm just hoping we pray before we even called her back. You did? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You prayed before you called her we back? We prayed because it was coming from me. We just prayed that Bakari was okay. But the news was devastating. Their youngest son had been killed after an altercation in a Serbian bar. A woman told authorities it started when she asked for a selfie with Bakari. She says a Serbian man asked her, why are you talking to a black guy, before hitting Bakari in the face. Do you think this was a racially motivated incident, or do you just think it was just something that was out of control and he just happened to be the unlucky victim here? How it started may not have started that way. It may have started out as an American issue and then resulted in, you know, a black American tragedy. Your son was a world traveler and clearly very comfortable traveling around the world, true? Correct, yes. yes. More yes. comfortable overseas than in the United States. So what his desire. What do you mean? Well, he just felt it was safer over in Europe and overseas in general. He said, you know, with the climate, with African-American males in the U.S., that he just felt more comfortable overseas. Isn't that ironic that he could say to you, mm -hmm. I feel more comfortable in another country other than my own? Yes. And he ends up losing his life in another country. Mm -hmm. For what reason, we still don't know exactly. exactly. Nine suspects face charges of voluntary manslaughter for the violent beating, which happened shortly after the attackers chased Bakari out of the bar. Jill, Phil has looked at the tape of that night, and you've, just, you've chosen not to. Mm -hmm. Right. Because? Um, well, I just want to keep his memory alive. I don't want to introduce any negativity into my spirit. And I really do want to remember him as a go-lucky, energetic, fun-loving, happy Bakari. I miss that about him, and I just miss his energy, his hugs, his laugh, his loud, boisterous laugh. I mean, his smile, mm -hmm. um, just yeah. everything. Bill? He's, he just brightens up a room. I'm going to miss... It's just, it's competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever a sporting event come on, he calls boxing, I mean, whatever it is, yeah. soccer, he loved it. And uh, I'm just going to miss that. I know, have your friends been very helpful for you both to get you through? The whole family is feeling the void. 
including younger sister Jory and older brother PJ. What will you miss most, PJ, about him? Uh, I miss talking. Right now, we'll be talking about the Cowboys and Eagles. <laughs> yes, yes, so yes. Going into football season without, uh, yes. without that is, 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 is different. So, yeah, that's what right now is what I'm missing, just talking sports with them. They took us to a mural that a stranger painted of Bakari shaded in purple. His mom says that was his favorite color. It also coats the walls of his bedroom. I knew there would be a lot of trophies in here. That's where they shared something special. This is um, a recording. It was a prayer Bakari led on a family phone call last June, asking God for health and peace around the world. Those words really resonate in this household as these parents try to make sense of their son's brutal death. You know, I first thought, what parents would raise such barbarians to do such an evil thing to another human being? And then the Holy Spirit just kind of spoke to me and said, you know what, it's bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. Because the world that we live in today, our leaders sit back and they just almost condone this type of behavior so they don't condemn it and by their silence they promote it and so I think in order for us to move forward we're going to have to do better in general what is it that you're still seeking what is it that you still want um, we want justice for Bakari and Which justice to you would mean what Justice would mean to have everyone involved to um, be locked up and hopefully for a very long time. Now, the family's hired a lawyer. They say they plan to be there in Greece to represent their son when the case goes to trial. A pair of GoFundMe pages has raised more than $100,000 to cover those costs. In the meantime, the Hendersons tell us they've heard nothing from members of Congress, members of the state other than a phone call from Senator John Cornyn's office when they were trying to bring Bakari's remains home last month. That's mm. the thing, guys. This is still so fresh. This just happened early July. And they're only speaking up because they want to bring attention, of course, to the case. They don't want this case to be forgotten. And, you know, it was heartbreaking to be there. The couple's been married 30 years, great family, planning a big family celebration mm. that Bakari was involved in planning. And there just is a big hole where there was a lot of life in that house, and it's just very, very sad. I know they have not spoken publicly until no. now went with you, and it's just so painful to hear about no. what happened to him. They've hired a lawyer here in New York, and they've hired a lawyer in Greece, but it's very difficult dealing with a foreign country, and they are hoping that somebody in the government will step in and help them. Sounds like a good man. Very, very good, good man. He was. Really, really good, man. good man. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas. And you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. Here it is, making fun of his colleagues' hairstyles and using the N-word. Now, we spoke to the Shelby County Sheriff's Office. They confirmed the man behind this meme is Mark Twilla. He worked here at one of the county's jails, that is, until this week when he was suspended with pay, pending the outcome of an internal investigation. Hi, Mark. Mark Twilla had nothing to say for himself. About this meme that surfaced Saturday, which a source tells us Twilla posted to a private Facebook group for law enforcement officers. Using a variation of the N-word, Twilla compares the man in this picture to two of his colleagues, whose names we've blurred. It's a modern-day racist type thing. I feel it's racist. 
Yeah, I mean it. You know what I'm saying? Most Memphians we spoke to outraged and offended. Look at the picture he put up. Out of all pictures, he had to put that up. But not all are focusing on the racial undertones. He needs some more gel activator. What do you mean by that? I mean, he got a curl. I mean, it's got to be antique. Curl or no curl, the post was enough for the Shelby County Sheriff's Office to begin investigating. And as they do so, Twilla is on paid vacation. Suspended. That's it. it. Mm. With pay? With pay. All right. Now you see why I don't vote. Why should he be suspended for speaking his mind to the person that expressed it? I mean, whatever influence you was up under, share. But all I'm saying is, it's okay freedom of speech. You know, first ladies usually have a cause, and you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt, and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. Welcome back. Five words on Facebook could get Missouri State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal kicked out of office. The senator posted a message hoping President Trump would be assassinated. Russell Kinsall is live in Ferguson detailing the new movement to force her out. Russell? Steve, I reached out to the governor's office to ask if Governor Greitens supports a special session to remove Senator Chappelle Nadal from office. Still waiting on that response, but I put calls out to numerous state senators, and here in her district, constituents had a mixed response to today's new developments. On Sunday, State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal issued another apology for her comment. I want to make this apology to our president and his family. President Trump, I apologize to you and your family. But she again refused to step down. Senate Democratic leaders stripped her of her committee assignments. Republican Senator Paul Wyland of Jefferson County told me she's not going to be a very effective legislator without those assignments, but he said she won't be powerless. Then we learned that Republican Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson sent a letter to senators that said, I'm calling on the Missouri Senate to go into special session in conjunction with veto session with the purpose of expelling Senator Chappelle Nadal. Some of her constituents told me they don't support a call for her to be expelled from office. I'm split down the middle. I know she shouldn't have said it. I doubt if she literally meant it. It was a matter of, I think she could do more good in office than out. I feel like she shouldn't be fired. She's just saying what we were thinking. I spoke with Republican Senator Dave Schatz, who said he wishes Chappelle Nadal would resign for writing what she did, but he said if she's not willing to do that, it's incumbent upon our body to take the necessary steps to remove her from office. And he said he feels the same way if it was a Republican or a Democrat. One voter said it's not uncommon for people to get fired over what they post online. Just a short time ago, I spoke with Democratic State Senator uh, Jill Shoup, who said that the comments that Chappelle Nadal made were horrific, but because she's apologized, admitted her mistakes, she believes maybe the punishment might be more appropriate if it's a censure. She does not support an expulsion for Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal. Live in Ferguson, Russell Kinsall, News 4. If the state Senate came together for a special session, it would cost taxpayers. A special session racks up about $9,000 per day in the state Senate. Most of that is for the nearly $114 given to lawmakers for daily expenses. Other costs include things like staffing and operational expenses in the Capitol building.
The image of the so-called alt-right is that it consists mostly of young white men with leaders like Richard Spencer and Milo Yiannopoulos, but there are many women involved as well. In an article called The Rise of the Valkyries, in the alt-right, women are the future and the problem, Saywood Darby writes about some of those female leaders and their roles in the movement. It's a cover story of the September issue of Harper's Magazine. I'm very pleased that it has brought Saywood Darby to our show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Don't members of the alt-right have certain beliefs on how women should behave? Do the women you write about all agree on that? There is a, a pretty central idea of gender dynamics. And actually, I think next to racial politics, uh, gender politics is the most important thing to members of the alt-right or people who would say they're members of the alt-right. And they they think that women hold equally important roles as men in white society, but not the same. Uh, so they see men as leaders, women as followers and supporters, providing counsel behind the scenes. They see men as, you know, fighting wars, leading politics. They see women as having babies and perpetuating the white race, nurturing family units. Um, and they expect women to embrace that. One of them, Isla Stewart, uh, suggests that we um, repeal the 19th Amendment. So... <laughs> Uh, th that's kind of sounds to me like a self-defeating yeah, disempowerment. It's it's an interesting question because this this point about should women vote, not vote, um, you get actually very different answers from different people. Um, and there are certainly men on the alt-right who do not think that women should have the right to vote. Um, and then there are people, women especially, who some will outright say, no, we shouldn't. But others are a bit cagier and they sort of dance around the issue, um, saying, well, in our ethno state, which is the thing they would like to create in the long term, households would vote as units. You wouldn't even need individual votes. So what's the ratio of married women to unmarried women who support the movement? It's really hard to say. The movement's so disparate and so much, you know, so, so very anchored deep inside the Internet that it's hard to say exactly how large it is and, you know, what proportion is what. If people vote, families vote as units, uh, that would uh, come as a surprise to a lot of people I know who don't always agree with their parents about political matters. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and Lana Lochteff, one of the women I spoke to, said she sort of put the question to me. She was like, well, would you ever vote differently than your husband? <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't think we would, but that's only because we believe the same things, not because we're married. <laughs> but there are many married couples Absolutely. who have different political Absolutely. views. So tell us a bit about Lana Lochteff. Uh, what's her background? So Lana Lochteff is uh, American. She uh, is from Oregon originally. And she and her husband, Henrik Palmgren, who is Swedish, run a media company called Red Ice, uh, which is an online platform for white nationalists to come on and do interviews. But didn't they start off covering conspiracies uh, about UFOs and 9-11? <laughs> How did they 
wind up associated with the alt-right. That's that's exactly right. They started out, Red Ice, about you know, 12 to 15 years ago, was a conspiracy theorist platform. And I think their, their most popular video on YouTube, last time I checked, was actually about UFOs. Um, and they shifted over to focusing on white nationalism about five years ago. And in part, it was a very natural shift, I think, because they see anti-white sentiment as a conspiracy. And they recently reached a partnership agreement with Richard Spencer's National Policy Institute. That's correct. They work very closely with him. How large is their following? So they have a great many followers on uh, Twitter, YouTube, um, and they also have memberships, which you can pay for, I think, $7 a month, and you get additional content. Um, And they would not tell me how many members they have. (laughs) Is part of her role to draw women to the alt-right movement? I think she certainly sees it that way. Uh, She, in the last couple of months, especially since the election, has been bringing on more and more women, people she finds on YouTube who might not necessarily identify as alt-right yet, but have, uh, you know, anti-political correctness, anti-feminist sentiment that would make sense within the alt-right. And what does that mean? She says she's disappointed with the so-called feminist agenda. What is the feminist agenda that she's disappointed with? Isn't she a woman who is taking a kind of a leadership role? Yes. Um, and this was the, the sort of central conundrum that drew me to this story in the first place, because I wanted to understand how women could be outspoken, but also dislike feminism. Uh, and every single woman I spoke to hates feminism, hates it. And I think the important thing to note is that they see feminism in caricature. Um, they define it as making women more like men and men more like women, um, you know, telling women that it's okay to not have children, uh, which they, you know, again, think is very important to the perpetuation of the white race, um, telling women that it's okay to be ugly, it's okay to be fat, it's okay to be, you know, a lesbian. They, they see it, they, they very much see all of that as in contradiction to this uh, you know, uh, the, the gender norms I was describing a few moments ago. So they see their role as being important to white nationalism because they're going to propagate the race. Absolutely. But doesn't she also claim that the alt-right is incredibly diverse? Only, uh, yes. <laughs> so it was funny when she said this because she said it is very diverse, just not racially. Um, and I thought when I read that at first, because it was in an email, I thought she said not just Racially, and then I realized it was flipped around. Um, so to be white is very, very important. Um, but then people come from a variety of religious backgrounds, um, national backgrounds, uh, all sorts of things. The protesters in Charlottesville chanted, Jews will not replace us. Is she also anti-Semitic? I asked, Are Jews white? So this is a very uh, complicated question within the alt-right because hardcore believers would say no, that Jews are not alt-right. But then there's a sliver of people who uh, are being defined increasingly as the alt-light, and they take a less hard stance on that and do say that, you know, it's possible that um, some Jewish people could be white nationalist. Lochtef claims that her family were the true refugees when they reached the United States. What does that mean? Weren't even Native Americans refugees from Asia at one point? <laughs> it's one of the, the difficult things about um, chatting with, with these folks is that they say things where you, you could really go down a rabbit hole with them and you could spend the entire interview talking about what does it mean to be a true refugee versus not. But I think what she was saying in that particular moment, she was describing how her grandparents or great-grandparents who were from Russia walked to China, went to the Philippines, and then wound up in California and ultimately Oregon as refugees um, back in the 19. 19- 
in the teens and then the 20s. Um, and she defined them as true refugees because she says they were escaping real political oppression, whereas today uh, many refugees are opportunists who are just escaping poverty, not actually oppression. Although there are people escaping real dangers in Central America. I Certainly. suspect she doesn't recognize that. Uh, well, I think that that's where the racial aspect comes into play, because if they're not white, um, you know, the the white nationalists don't want them here. My guest is Sayward Darby, whose story, uh, the cover story of Harper's this month, is the rise of the Valkyries in the alt-right, women of the future, and the problem. Tell us about Keegan Hanks. Uh, what did he tell you about the alt-right? So Keegan Hanks works for the Southern Poverty Law Center, which uh, does, you know, its whole mission is to um, to look at right-wing extremism uh, and to keep track of it in America. And they, they were doing it well before the rest of us <laughs> started, um, or not the rest of us, but many journalists over the last year or so. Um, but, but the general feeling was that the alt-right had really diminished, that there weren't too many people who were still neo-Nazis. We weren't seeing them. KKK members. Uh, so uh, it's only recently that it's that it seems like either there's a resurgence or they've come out uh, in the open again. And it's hard to say exactly which one it is. I think, you know, the, the alt-right, as I mentioned, um, is very much a product of the internet. It's an animal of the internet. Um, you know, some people say they're alt-right and you don't even know who they are. They're, they're, they only exist with avatars and handles and, you know, talk on comment boards. Um, but the, the, the sort of, uh, moment you're talking about, I think, is that they're very much riding Trump's coattails. They don't they don't see Trump as alt-right, but they see him as an avenue to stepping out into the world, as we saw in Charlottesville. And how did they uh, enlist using the internet? Goodness. Um, well, you know, uh, white nationalism um, and white supremacy has a has a long history on the internet. Stormfront, um, which is you know the most famous, I think, of uh, of internet message boards for these folks, um, dates back to the '90s, and. Um, the alt-right over the last, I would say, five to seven years um, followed in the footsteps of those kinds of websites, creating their own outlets, their own websites, places where people could go, be anonymous, say hateful things, and get away with it. And only recently are they being banned from many uh, websites. Uh, the Stormer no longer has a home. A, a bunch of the others don't have a home anymore. Uh but I'm sure they'll find a place sooner or later. Definitely. And the, a good example of this is um, Twitter, which has been a very important platform for them, uh, has you know started and over the last several months has been shutting down some people's accounts. And oftentimes they'll just create a new account under a different name. But they also have a platform called Gab, uh, which is a Twitter-like platform. Um, but there's no uh, – you're not going to get kicked off for what you say. I'm curious about the feeling that we hear from so many of their fears that uh, the white race is imperiled. Do they see themselves as potential victims of history? They they would say that they are very much victims, um, and they many of them will say that a white genocide is happening right before our eyes. And you know, again, going back to this concept of a conspiracy theory that uh, you know the political establishment, liberals, feminists, Jewish people are you know all in on it. Um, and have they looked at the heads of the corporations of America <clears throat> and uh, the people who actually who are in Congress? I, it doesn't sound like that's happening. 
you're right, and it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that what they do in conversation is they, if you were to put that kind of fact to them, they would pivot away from it. Um, and they would say, well, we used to be 80% of the United States, and now we're closer to 60. Clearly, something is wrong. Um, or they will pull, you know, a single story out of the news about, um, you know, a, a a person from another country killing someone in the United, a white person in the United States and say, see, there's a scourge of violence. Um, and so they're very tricky with facts. <laughs> a sensitive accusation for this administration is the theory held by many that the real reason the U.S. is so interested in toppling Sodom is control of the oil that Iraq is sitting on. What about people who say you're only interested in the Middle East for oil? What? Huh? Oil? For years, ExxonMobil's local refinery in the small, mostly African-American community of Charlton Pollard, Texas, had been spewing at least 135 toxic chemicals into the neighborhood, causing health problems that range from asthma and hair loss to cancer and heart disease, leading residents and environmental activists to file a civil rights complaint against the oil giant in April 2000. In a recent investigation for The Intercept called A Legacy of Environmental Racism, journalist Sharon Lerner reveals that ExxonMobil is still pumping toxins into Charlton Pollard 17 years after the civil rights complaint was filed and even after the EPA promised to investigate in 2003 but then did nothing to revoke ExxonMobil's permit. The article, which was reported in partnership with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute, is published on The Intercept's website. I'm very pleased it has brought Sharon Lerner back to our show. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Hi. The refinery, which is in the suburb of Beaumont, Texas, processes sour crude oil. What's sour crude oil? Um, it's, It's... Oil or petroleum that has a lot of sulfur in it that needs to be removed in order to make it uh, useful as gasoline and other things. How long has that plant been in Charlton Pollard? Um, You know, I don't know when it was originally built, but certainly for... uh, Well, I mean, it has actually... I can tell you it's been there since... You know, the actual uh, oil production uh, facility and petroleum processing plant has been there for a long time. It has uh, evolved in the ownership. Like at one point it was Exxon and then Exxon and Mobil uh, merged and then it was Exxon Mobil. And that has been, I believe, about 20 years that it's belonged to Exxon Mobil. Aren't there many refineries and petrochemical plants in that Gulf area near, near the, the Spindletop well? Yes, exactly. So that's where people may be familiar with that, uh, the image of the gushing well, uh, which has become sort of, you know, the symbol of of um, oil boom, uh, the oil boom in Texas. And that was right there, right near there. And that, uh, I believe it was 1908, I hope that's right, is when... Uh, when the, the huge refining... Uh, refining operation sort of took off there. Uh, and it's not just that one refinery right nearby. There, um, maybe like 15 minutes away, there's a town called Port Arthur, which is really de- dealing with many of the same issues uh, in terms of pollution. And they also have a lot of refineries, uh, a big refinery there. Theirs used to be run by Shell and is now completely Saudi-owned. Uh, do they all have the so-called flare events? 
Yes, yes, that is a common feature. So we, we're all familiar with these kind of um, pipes that, that poke up into the sky and then have a little flame on top. Those are the flares, and flare events are when those pipes give off like a huge, they, they release a whole, um, a whole bunch of pollution through them and ignite it. Some of it um, burns, some of it doesn't. And, but you can experience it from the outside when this happens, you see a giant fireball, basically. And that happens with regularity, uh, as far as I know, or at all the refineries and certainly uh, in Beaumont, where I was writing about it. And they release at least 135 toxic chemicals. Uh, what are some of them? Uh, are they mostly carcinogenic? Not mostly carcinogen, though there certainly are a, a big number of carcinogens. Um, but there are, in in terms of sour crude, because there's the sulfur coming up. There, there's sulfur dioxide. Uh, sorry, sulfur dioxide uh, and hydrogen sulfide. And those are two uh, of the big ones of concern. And in terms of um, of uh, non-carcinogenic health-harming uh, chemicals or uh, VOCs, well, some of those are carcinogens, but also particulate matter, which is something uh, that we're uh, that is an, a big concern around the world. Um, we know it sometimes as PM 2.5 or the bigger particles or PM 10. So the, those are just some of the many, many things coming out of that plant. And what are VOCs? Oh, um, I, the VOC stands for, I'm not going to get it right. Um, it's, but vinyl, uh, you know what, I'm not going to get it right on off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But they're but, not, they're uh, not good to breathe in. Sorry. Volatile organic compounds, yes. yes. And they are not good to breathe in, and some of them are carcinogenic. Uh, so people try to leave this neighborhood. One family with a 12-year-old daughter recently left because they feared the pollution was the reason that she began losing her hair after they'd moved in. But why is it difficult for residents to leave the neighborhood? So it is, you know, the, the the question is who wants to le- live in a heavily polluted neighborhood? And the answer, of course, is no one. <laughs> so who does live there? The people who don't have, who can't afford to live elsewhere, basically. So, or people, uh, I would say that with some overlap with people who have been there for a long time, and this is what they know. And certainly a lot of those people leave if they can. So People stay there because they feel like they ha- they don't have other options. And because um, there is so much pollution there, real estate uh, is very, very uh, inexpensive. So you can, you know, you can buy a house there for $500. Uh, but, you know, most people don't want to <laughs> because you're literally inundated with air pollution. And so people, again, don't leave because they either don't have any options, uh, any other options or feel that they don't. And do many of them work for Exxon? You know, they don't. And one would assume that, oh, you know, that that's why you would stay. But, um, in fact, Exxon hasn't been a huge employer of this area, uh, in you know, in this immediate area, which is right on the fence line. I didn't meet uh, many people who either had worked there or new people who had worked there. Um, and ahead. I think, again, it's, those are actually relatively well-paying jobs. And, again, I think if you can, if you have one, you're not going to live there. 
probably. Did the local residents believe that uh, the fact that many are experiencing hair loss, a variety of cancers, asthma, heart disease, and learning disabilities, among other things, are directly linked to the pollution from the refinery? Um, well, let me back up for a sec. So for the hair loss, you know, the hair, the hair loss, that, that was certainly, you know, there was a family living next door to um, someone I had interviewed who moved away because they were afraid uh, their daughter, when they moved to the neighborhood, began losing her hair. And they were afraid that it had something to do with all the pollution that they knew was there. Did it, did it not? That's hard to say. And I didn't actually speak with them directly, but I did speak with many people um, who had all sorts of ailments, heart problems, um, who had had strokes, who had cancer. And all those things are directly related. It is incredibly difficult to pin blame for any one disease or incidence of disease on anything, really. And so this is part of the problem communities like this face, because you know, someone will say, well, you know, I talked to people who had, like, cancer. one man, he had had a stroke in his 30s, his, uh, parents had died very young, his grandfather had died very young, his siblings were all sick, so it was just like this sort of sickness all around, and can you say for sure that any of those, uh, you know, or all of those things were, were you know, can you pin them to pollution, not necessarily, but you can say that all of these things, uh, the incidence of all these things is increased. The likelihood is increased by being exposed to these pollutants, and they happen to be uh, very common in this area. So a lot of people, you know, you, I think this is the problem, problem that they face. You know, how do you prove this? Well, in court, you can have a really hard time, but in life, you know, if you know that, uh, and, and some of the acute symptoms, there's absolutely no question. So one of the things that happens immediately is, and it happened to me, is, you know, you get these um, symptoms, headaches, and you get uh, sort of respiratory problems. And people talk to me about, you know, they're constantly congested. They leave the area for a vacation or just for work or whatever. It goes away. And they come, you know, when they return home, it comes back. So that, you know, for sure uh, is completely related to the air quality in that area. The rest of it sort of lies in this murky, this murky area where common sense says, you know, these chemicals cause these problems and you have these problems where these chemicals are, are um, abundant. So, a lot, you know, people don't wait around to kind of try to parse that, you know, parse out the science or work it out legally if they don't have to. What did the residents of Charlton Pollard argue when they filed the formal complaint with the EPA 17 years ago? So these problems have been going on at least that long, more, you know, uh, longer even. Was and Rex Tillerson ExxonMobil CEO at the time? No, he wasn't, actually. And when they first... Um, when they first filed the complaint, the two companies hadn't even merged yet, Exxon and Mobil. But what was going on, you know, basically they were, the plant was about, to, the refinery was about to expand in 1999. And already, uh, and the pollution, I should say, was worse back then because there were a lot of pollution control uh, equipment pieces that, that 
uh, weren't in use yet, and there, there was less awareness of the danger of all these things and less attention paid to them. So here there is heavy pollution. You know, the people next to the plant are really feeling it and experiencing health effects, and then they find out that the refinery is going to expand. And so they wanted to have a hearing about it and, and voice their objections. And the state environmental authority at the time said, no, uh, we're going to just offset, you know, whatever increases in pollution from the refinery from with decreases at a nearby chemical plant, and we don't need to have a hearing. And so in response, the people in the community filed a complaint, and they went you know, above the state to the feds, to the EPA, and said, uh, you know, they detailed all the pollution and their fears that it was only going to get worse with the expansion. And then they kind of went further and said, this is a violation of our civil rights because you're expanding this plant, uh, which already gives us so much pollution, in an area that is overwhelmingly African-American. And at the time, the the area, Charlton Pollard, was 95% African-American. So uh, they said in their complaint in 2000, this is a violation of our civil rights. And they were allowed to, they could say this because using the civil rights law, uh, you know, anyone who is a recipient of federal funds is allowed to discriminate, and the state agency got federal funds, so that was their argument. And so they issued a Title VI complaint? Yeah, that's the civil rights complaint. It's called Title VI because that's the clause in the civil rights law. How long before the EPA responded? Well, in 2003, they sent out a letter saying, "Okay, we've gotten your, we've gotten your complaint. We're going to investigate." 2003. So this 2000, is after 2000. Th- this, yeah. So three years later, we're going to investigate, and then that was it. They never heard from them again about this until 2017. So, you know, at first, the people were really excited that they actually got a response and they were going to have an investigation. And and there was the sense, that, you know, there had been a lot of activity in the area, a lot of community kind of meetings and, and protests and people getting really excited about the idea that they were going to try to hold the company accountable for all this pollution that they were dealing with. Um, and so after they got the response, it was like, wow, we're getting somewhere. And I think over the 14 years <laughs> since that, you know, that excitement died off to the point where there is um, – I found no one in the area who was optimistic at all that this was going to get resolved. Did the EPA ever consult the residents of Charlton Pollard? They didn't. They didn't. And so what happened was... So we're talking um, about uh, three president, two presidencies and now the Trump presidency. Let's see. Yes. Mm-hmm. You report that both African-Americans and Latinos are more likely than whites to live near the country's 149 refineries. Doesn't that mean that they're being subjected to higher levels of pollution overall and suffering more health problems? It does. It, it does. It's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, I'm sure people, in, you know, who are listening are familiar with the terms uh, environmental justice and environmental racism. And, 
and you know there are so many different pieces that go into this a lot of it you know it has to do we were talking about real estate value that's part of it uh and but in the end what you have is that um both african and uh african-american and latino uh people in our country are are both uh more exposed to these toxins have higher levels in their uh, blood. There's one study that looked at um, 14 different uh, toxins and found that African-Americans had higher exposure levels than whites for 13 of them, and Latinos had the highest level of pollution overall. So it's, you know, you can, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, when uh, who can afford to live where and what's nearby, where are you living? But the end result, you know, you can see it in our bodies, what kind of things end up in our blood. This past May, the EPA officially closed the case. What did they say in their letter? Were there any well, changes so, proposed? Yeah. Yeah. So the EPA recently has gone through um, a sort of burst of closing these environmental uh, justice cases, these Title VI cases. And, you know, in a way, you can see that as good, because basically what's happened before that is that people file all these uh, these states saying, you know, we feel we're being discriminated against, and uh, overwhelmingly, nothing happens. So either the cases sit unattended or they're rejected, meaning they'll be accepted for an investigation, but the investigation doesn't happen, or they say we're not going to investigate, or sometimes they'll investigate and they say, no, there is no discrimination. It's incredibly rare for uh, for these to have an outcome where the EPA says, you know what, you're right, you're being uh, discriminated against, and we're going to do something about it, which is, of course, what people are hoping when they file these things. So uh, so in, to, in May of this year, uh, the EPA sent a letter saying that their case was being closed, resolved, and basically it said that that the um, community would have, it promised one community meeting, no, I'm sorry, two community meetings and one air monitor. And so I think everyone I spoke to who was involved with the complaint felt, and who just lived there felt this was inadequate, like a community meeting where I guess people will answer questions, won't necessarily address the problem. And the monitor, um, that they're proposing is more than a mile away from the plant on the other side of the community from where people, from it's way past where people live. So the community is right up against this fence. And if you go through the community across the sort of major road that, you know, sets it off from the rest of Beaumont and further, then you come to the place where they propose putting the monitor. And of course, if you think about pollution and how it travels, um, it's not going to register. Air pollution is going to become more and more uh, uh, dispersed as it travels, so it won't accurately reflect what, in fact, the people living next to the plant are breathing in. There was a complaint from Flint, Michigan, over an incinerator power plant that dated back to 1992. The complaint focused the, uh, accused the, the, the plant of, of practicing environmental racism. Was that case also closed? I mean, Flint's had a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. We? No, and, and this, of course, 
predated the water from mm. 1992. Um, so this was really a sad and interesting situation. So there is this, originally when they filed this complaint, the plant hadn't been built yet. And it was supposed to be burning hazardous waste, which included uh, things with lead paint and things. They, and, and they felt it would be very dangerous. And the folks who made this complaint were objecting again to the site because, again, it was in a mostly African-American neighborhood. Um, and again, their, uh, their complaint did not get investigated. And they actually filed two different complaints. Neither got investigated. And um, their response, so this was another one that was closed out uh, 25 years after the complaint was initially filed. And basically, uh, they didn't address, you know, they, they didn't address, how could they, the underlying situation, which was, we don't want this plant built here. And in fact, the plant was built there 22 years ago. And since then has been putting all the things out into the air that the people in the community feared. Uh, and one of the striking things about that situation was there are four people who initially filed this complaint. Three of them are dead at this point. You know, partly that's a reflection of all the time that's passed. So one of them uh, died in her early 50s and lived near the plant, and she died of cancer. So was that related? Again, who knows? But I, I think it really underscores how inadequate that response is. The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today, the Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory. The curtain falls. His name was Richard Claxton Gregory, born October 12, 1932, St. Louis, Missouri. But the world knew him and would remember him as Dick Gregory, comedian, human rights activist, social critic, and presidential candidate. As a young man, he won an athletic scholarship as a runner, which took him to college. But he really hit his mark as a comedian who told side-splitting jokes about American racism and segregation. He once joined Malcolm X at his speech at the Audubon Ballroom, 1964, a meeting of the Organization of African American Unity in New York. Gregory did what he always did. He told jokes. One of his most famous and remarkable jokes after Malcolm introduced him as a revolutionary and freedom fighter went like this. If the FBI ever tapped your phone like they tapped mine, see, they didn't know. FBI wasn't used to tapping no colored folks' phone. Yeah, they came in with a $10,000 worth of equipment so they could tap my phone. And two days after they set all that equipment up, my phone got cut off. The ballroom exploded in hearty laughter. Most of the people understood that he was talking about something they knew about, FBI surveillance. But beneath the jokes and laughter lived a sober truth. For Gregory himself was a target of FBI surveillance in the COINTELPRO program. It's chilling to note that the FBI regarded him as a, quote, militant black nationalist, unquote, and his file was under the name Black Nationalist Hate Groups. Gregory 
outspoken on many social issues, once criticized the Mafia as the filthiest snakes that ever existed on this earth. What did the FBI do? Well, they sent his statement to the Mafia. I kid you not. Think about that. Gregory was a good friend of both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. He sacrificed a multi-million dollar career in comedy to take the front lines of the civil rights and black freedom movements, where he suffered arrest, beatings by police, and, as we've seen, he became a target of FBI surveillance. He didn't just joke about the FBI. He survived the infamous COINTELPRO program. He lived through 84 winters of America. And in 1968, he ran for president and got 47,712 votes. Dick Gregory returns to his ancestors. From Imprison Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 26th, 2017. So I have been told. I feel like we might have to be, I don't know, concise. I feel like we might have to uh, get our diligence in before all the hysteria about the prize fight this evening. I don't know how many cows listeners are at uh, a watch party of some sort, uh, but I suspect attention might be waning as it gets closer for the time for round one. That said, uh, for folks who are not paying attention uh, to all of the uh, entertainment nonsense going on this evening, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you you would like to participate. Uh, Make sure we get this said early. Uh, There will be no commentary about this evening's contest until maybe the final five minutes. Uh, I do not think that that is a major priority uh, under the system of racism, white supremacy. I have seen uh, prize fights between a black person and a white person for more. Well, I haven't seen them, but these things have been happening for more than a hundred years. We've talked about Jack Johnson. They got documentaries about this Muhammad Ali. And uh, what was the white guy that they said they based it on Rocky. And uh, I saw an article a couple of days ago, Larry Holmes, when he fought George Clinton, it's tons of these, tons of these, tons of these, tons of these. You can, uh, all of us can have fun and reminisce about what happened this time at that time. And the great white hope, None of that should be a high priority in the system of white supremacy. So we have zero interest in hearing that until maybe the last five minutes. Now, a couple things before we get started. We are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. 
when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address uh, to any of the folks. If you're going to mail something, you should confirm before you mail out just to make sure you have the correct mailing address. Uh, thanks so much to all the people who have invested and uh, kept the cows lights on, kept us broadcasting for nearly a decade. Uh, it has been, I hope, worthy of your time and energy. And I hope that the cows has uh, helped folks get a better understanding of what racism is, how it works. Uh, if you're not into uh, PayPal and all that stuff, you can also support uh, the wish list, Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Thanks to all the folks who have nabbed items from the wish list as well. Something I could not put on my wish list, unfortunately. Thankfully, I was able to get a massage. In fact, the program for today interrupted my six hour spa session. Until this broadcast, I did absolutely nothing today but hang out at the spa. In fact, my six hour spa session was cut in half. The midsection point was a 90 minute massage. Incredible cows listeners were with me throughout my day for the entirety of the experience. Uh, it started bright and early in the morning because I got there right when they opened at 10 o'clock. I was one of the first people to walk in. And uh, before I got there, I stopped to get uh, a beverage. Uh, I ended up getting a smoothie. I thought of Roz immediately and cracked up laughing. I'm not sure if he's listening uh, live again. Our condolences. I know he recently lost his father-in-law, but he suggested because of my back issue, why I was going to the spot to begin with uh, to get turmeric. So I'm trying to get a beverage before I go for my spa session and they have turmeric, golden milk, whole turmeric, ginger and forest honey. Just, the turmeric part on the back, uh, it's 1800 milligrams of whole turmeric root. Ross, if he's listening, see if that uh, is potent enough. Uh, it reads, uh, turmeric has been used for over 4,000 years to support joint health, respiratory health, and digestive wellness. We add black pepper to help increase the bioavailability of curcumin the compound credited with its body harmonizing benefits. Our golden milk is long lovingly crafted with ginger. We just talked about that as well. Coconut and a touch of wild forest honey. And it has a thousand milligrams of ginger as well. But that's what I had to start my day, my spa session. It was amazing. Thomas was with me as well. I don't know if he's listening. Thomas in New York. He had said before, I've been talking about my back issues, which caused me to cancel numerous programs throughout the month and uh it has really been uh painful and really really unpleasant uh for gusty but improving drastically and whew, i am radiant that was how i felt after my massage emmy but thomas in new york he had joke jokingly said uh we should get uh one of those asian female masseuses to walk on your back Lo and behold, the massage, uh, the masseuse was an Asian female and she did walk on my back. I had to stop myself from cracking up laughing like what in the world? I should have listened to Thomas weeks ago and we could have been done with all of this. But it was amazing. Best thing ever would have been better uh, if there was a black massage parlor 
that I could have went to. I was thinking that probably exists, but Gus would probably have to leave uh, Seattle to get that. Would have been better to have a black female doing it, but thankfully I did get someone other than a white person to uh, hook it up. It was man heavenly. And I would say something about quality of life because uh, both with my experience and I thought of this early this year, uh, my friend, his mother was in a car accident, non-white female. She was obviously having some pain. Her daughter has a few more nickels, non-white uh, female. Her daughter has a few more nickels, hooks her up. She lives here in Seattle, flies her down to California and gets her a two week session uh, with this acupuncturist. And they do all these sessions and massage and all this physical therapy uh, every day for two weeks. And she comes back. Also, she is radiant and feeling way better. It costs like four thousand dollars. But I don't know if you can put a price on, you know, health. If you're if you are experiencing pain, I mean, wow, to be able to alleviate that, man. Um, and that felt the same way with my massage thing. Like, man, it can be cost prohibitive uh, for non-white people to just get simple things that would do a lot uh, to be able to alleviate some of our suffering, some of our physical pain, that sort of thing. And just racists make it so difficult uh, to get resources. I mean, yeah, it was it was absolutely amazing. Loved it. Uh, I would encourage non-white, particularly black people, I would encourage us to do more things that are replenishing and are healthy uh, for us. I was able with my spa session, I was able to go sit in the spa and do the contrast, go to the cold pool and the hot tub. It was just out of this world. Uh, and particularly that last segment where they were talking about all of the poisons that racists dump on us worldwide uh, with all of those toxins, anything that you can do that is helping to uh, detoxify your body. If it's fasting, if it's being able to go to the spa, I know 909 uh, had talked uh, for years about going to the sweat lodge and just being able to sweat and purify your body because they are just poisoning us all the time. Uh, and even uh, spiritually detoxify, uh, extremely important because they're just poisoning us all the time. But self-care is super important, uh, definitely should be done and should should not be inspired by injury. That was one thing that I was thinking. I might not have been at the spa today if I had not had the back injury. Moving forward, a couple other quick things and then we will get to folks who dialed in. The black female caller in New York with me as well. She prompted me to find one of the times because Dr. Welsing said that about Dick Gregory on many, many occasions on this program elsewhere. She said it all the time, uh, glowingly giving him uh, a tribute about him paying attention to the news. And I think about that when people, you know, kind of brag or suggest that they don't read the news and they say this, you know, boastfully or suggest that it's stupid to read the news like that. Dick Gregory is a lame that Dr. Welsing. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Reading the news. That's the, the lamest thing that you could do in the history of the universe. Who needs to read the newspaper? Like when people take that position, that's, you know, what I contrast when you have Dick Gregory. I'm trying to buy as many newspapers as possible. Possible. Give me 30 of them. Dr. Welsing, I'm trying to catch up with Dick Gregory. You know, give me as many as possible and saving Mr. Fuller from being able to go back over the years. Uh, that's what I think about. But again, legend Dick Gregory on the program a couple times passed away. I think right while we were on last week, I know Ken Steele brought it up and I think uh, B. Moore asked about it on Facebook, but it was right. I think as we were broadcasting uh, last week and just to take another moment to pause and recognize him passing at the age of 84. 
context of white supremacy. I'll make sure to post the uh, times. He was a two-time guest on the cows. I'll make sure to post the links uh, to his visits with us. And I think I will stop there. Um, In fact, no, I will not. One of our listeners wrote in, I can give my cue Saturday program if we could refrain from using metaphors. That would be appreciated if we can be explicit, direct about what it is that we would like to say. Racists, they frequently practice deception by using metaphors. They will make comparisons between things that are not equivalent. They do this on a regular basis. It is a master tactic of deception, act of racism. Victims, we've just been exposed to this a lot down through the years. Uh, We uh, mimic a lot of the racist behaviors uh, that have been performed. And a lot of us, we are still learning. Gus T. Renegade, still learning. When you're in that position, sometimes you have not come to a conclusion. So sometimes you use a metaphor, analogy uh, in the hope that that will articulate your thoughts. And often it does not. It just produces a lot more confusion, uh, clarity. I think we talked about that on the book study session yesterday. Franz Fanon, clarity, clarity, counter-racism is supposed to be about clarity. And the cue, one of our listeners, he wrote today while I was at the spa, he wrote on my Facebook page, I was reading over my first blog post and I couldn't help but observe some of the metaphors like The refinement of white supremacy has some non-white people thinking that instead of being served mashed potatoes, you are served French fries with the belief that they aren't potatoes. And choosing between candidates Donald J. Trump and Secretary Hillary R. Clinton becomes more like being offered something to eat with the choices being a feces sandwich or a iPhone 7. Since then, with the influence of the program, I use less metaphors. And when I do use them, they are much more appropriate. Right on. That last one is uh, quite curious. Feces sandwich or iPhone 7. Hmm. Which? Never mind. If we could not use metaphors, compensatory call in. Thank you kindly. Uh, If you could take five minutes to share whatever commentary uh, you have to offer. Uh, that would be great uh, if you could limit it to five. That way everybody gets the opportunity to share and then we should have time because everybody will be bailing to go watch the fight. So we should have ample time for people to share whatever they would like that is not related to boxing. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm glad you're feeling better. Got your massages and all that great stuff. That's wonderful. Um, two things, well, a few things. First, um, I know we've been talking about kidneys and stuff for a while. I have a story, not me personally, thank the Lord, but my uncle, he had um, some kidney problems. And last month he was told that he was the first person, he will be number one on the list in the whole state of New Jersey where he lives. So Monday, well, last weekend, they called him. Oh, yay, woo-hoo, we got got one for you. Of course, not true. They gave it to somebody else. He has, he had to fuss at them because then they were keeping him long so he can go to dialysis for real. And my mom was telling me, I was like, white people at work. But I guess this could have a happy ending because I heard today he was in surgery because I guess they got it together or whatever. So he's getting some new organs. So hopefully... 
that'll work out for him. Um, second, the story with Miss, Mrs. Henderson, of course, that's heartbreaking. Those stories are always heartbreaking. But I felt bad for her because she was saying, we have to do more, we have to do more. It's like, well, what did you do? You raised your son correctly. He was nice, and he got killed by racists. And then during the story, they say, the man said, what are you doing talking to this black guy? And then she goes, well, I don't know if it was racist. Like, if that was the first thing he said, I I don't know. I'm just, leave you They have grief. My heart goes out to them because that's just always horrible. And, you know, lately I've been watching the CNN and, you know, black people will be saying things or whatever. So the one black guy, he's telling his story, blah, 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 saying, oh, my people, this and that. And then this white man tells him, no, people do not care about this. And the black man's like, well, yes, they do. And I'm thinking, you need to start listening to these white people. When they tell you they don't care, they don't care. And we need to kind of, you know, I know you're on TV and you want to look like the strong man. I don't, well, the strong person in that situation. But I think we need to be careful when they tell you they don't care about racism, that America doesn't care about racism. They kind of don't care. And, of course, evidenced by this weekend as the president tried to, I guess, push the pardon thing under the radar because it was Friday and they thought people wouldn't notice about the sheriff in Arizona Arizona getting pardoned, but they did, and that's all I have for right now. Thank you. Prayers on the uh, kidney transplant. I hope that is... uh... I hope everything works out well, and wow, that we have been talking about that quite a bit this uh, sun, summer. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Grubb, she was guest on the program, and she came to hang out in Seattle this summer as well. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you all have uh, commentary? May I be heard? Uh, let's get the female caller first. Hello, everyone, and thank you for taking my call. Um, this is Red from Ohio. Just... Um, mainly comments uh, relating to the uh, clips today. The clip about uh, Bakari Henderson, I thought that that was first very um, upsetting, very sad. Um, if it was a, and I was wondering, I'm not sure, um, if it was a, the white woman, if it was a white woman who was the reporter or interviewer, um, I always, because I, I kind of talked about this before on the show, how my name is not necessarily like a, uh, a, a European name, I guess, like a um, like a Bill or like a Emily, something like that. So I, I definitely pay attention to that type of thing. And she said the first question that she started off the clip with asking was, "Oh, this is that was an unusual name, um, referring to Bakari, and what does the name mean?" And I also noticed when um, they were speaking about like Bakari's mother, if I'm not mistaken, she was saying how he Bakari himself felt like it was less racism overseas than in the U.S. And I have heard that sentiment before from um, older people who are around my family, um, especially those who have maybe gone off to war for a tour or what, or what have you, maybe like in Europe. And I tried to explain to them when I started to be a little bit less confused. It, and, it, and when I think about it now, it's mainly, it's mainly um, their reasoning as to why Europe was, is not, as quote-unquote, um, like, racially discriminative is because of cowbells. 
that, that was basically it. Um, and, and then there was the, the clip, uh, or I, I started thinking about like, um, my medical issues that I've had recently, I've been having like this sharp pain, um, and it's been going on for like a couple of months. And so I go to this specialized doctor because I figure, well, maybe it is, you know, something to do with a particular part of my body. I'll go to that person who apparently has studied and of course is a, a white man. I'm very uncomfortable about it, but I, I go anyway. And he decides, well, let's run all these tests. And they weren't blood tests. But he's like, well, let's run all these tests. And he says the test came back negative, but I'm still having this pain. And they offer no, no one in his office, which are also white people, white women, offer no uh, explanation, no help as to why I'm still having this pain. So I end up going back to my regular doctor who doesn't specialize in a particular part of the body, who is a black female. And when I tell her about my issues, she seems a lot more alarmed than the white doctor who apparently specialized in it. And I'm just happy to say that I don't have that pain because she she took a, a very proactive uh, approach to it. I also was thinking about how um, um, actually the when the um, the I guess it would be like a, a I don't want to say a, a, the person the the political the person in politics, the black lady in politics, um, speaking about the the time when her mother passed away um, because of the racial discrimination and experience in the hospital particularly. My grandmother, she told me a story and I didn't think about it being racially motivated until more most recently. Um, she was telling me a story about how she had, her first child was a, a still, um, resulted in a stillbirth because the she kept going in um, throughout like the first and second trimester, everything seemed fine. But then when you got to the third trimester, um, she had to keep going back into the hospital and it was more than the typical third trimester uh, equipment, but they would never tell her what was going on. They just kept running a bunch of tests and would send her home. And then next thing you know, apparently the baby had passed like before the third trimester. And I, I honestly felt like, you know, they just didn't care. They wanted to just experiment. Um, the last comment that I just want to quickly say, when it was, um, there was the white interviewer, the other white, I'm assuming it's a white woman who was being interviewed about the um, expansion or, or the quote unquote expansion of hate groups. And when she referred, when she referred to the Stormfront website, she said the famous website instead of infamous. And from my understanding, I could be wrong. I thought you refer to infamous when it's, um, when something is widely known, but it's, for a negative reason. When they refer to Hitler, they I usually hear people refer to him as infamous. Uh, that's the only commentary that I wanted to add right now. Thank you. Oh, that's such a good point. Such a good point. They, uh, the definition for infamous, uh, well known for some bad quality or deed, perhaps they don't think Stormfront uh, is guilty of any bad qualities or deeds. Uh, the male caller who spoke up simultaneously. Uh, thank you for being patient. Proceed. Oh, greetings, guests, and to the rest of the callers. Um, I just wanted to first talk about the white supremacist rallies that were supposed to take place today and tomorrow in the Bay Area. Um, one of them was supposed to take place in San Francisco today and tomorrow in Berkeley, but both of them got canceled 
for some apparent reason. I'll do more research on that in the meantime. But um, I could honestly say that I'm satisfied that those rallies got canceled because if they were to still happen, I would have realized that either one of my friends would have got hurt being there because I know at least three people want, wanted to go there. One of uh, Like three of my friends said that they were going to those rallies. I just said, okay, because I didn't want to. I get into a big argument about why they should or shouldn't go because I, I wouldn't know myself either. But um, I, w- I feel like if the white supremacist rallies were to have occurred, then like here, like here in San Francisco or in Berkeley, then there would have been a lot of damage either to an individual or to a monumental building of some sort. And I just didn't want that to happen because it's just, it's just unimportant to me. Well, not the fact of racism, but having this rally right now. But, that's what I wanted to say about the white supremacist rallies, but I also wanted to um, speak on the audio clip about the AP classes. I felt like I can easily relate to that because earlier last year, I was signing up for classes and electives for this upcoming year, and somebody decided to look over my schedule and they pointed out how they had how to, how I had one honors class and three other AP classes that I was willing to take. And they stated, I think, they stated, oh, you really want to take that many classes? Are you trying to kill yourself? You're, you're not going to have a social life. I wouldn't recommend it, this, that, and the other. And I just said, okay. But in in my mind, I just asked, why, why are you looking over here? Please stay on your own schedule. Like, I just I just felt bothered when they came over to my space to criticize my schedule. But next thing you know, during the summer, I was most likely the first person to finish these AP summer assignments to get into the courses. And two months later, I find out I'm in all three of them. So I just I just wanted to say it was difficult. It was difficult not only for me to do the work, but for people to register that I was willingly doing this type of stuff, that I was not forced to do this, but I just saw the opportunity and I just took it anyway. But that's all I wanted to share. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, One second. Uh, This is our young scholar in the Bay Area. Uh, Always good to hear from you. Your friends who wanted to go to the rally, these are... Your friend, these are black children? Oh, yeah, these were black children that okay. wanted to go. Okay. What, what did, why did they want to go? What, what were they going to do at the rally? Um, as far as I know, they wanted to just watch. They, they told me that they wanted to just watch the rallies, comment on some of the stuff that they, that they were going to do when they, when they would have got back to school. They would have told me what happened, uh, what they would have said. They, they, I, I guess they just wanted to look at what what was happening. That, that's what I would assume. They really didn't go too deep on what they were going to do. I see. Okay. Yeah, That it sounds like you gave a great suggestion and, importantly, didn't want to argue with other black people about, hey, VGQ, that's your decision? You want to go? No problem. Uh, and just... 
might not be safe. Uh, I've seen where a lot of these events, as you stated, uh, a lot of these events, things get kind of violent. Uh, sometimes it can, particularly if it's a black person, they have a hard time picking out, is this a protester? Is this a terrorist? Is this a bystander? Sometimes they say they have a hard time telling the difference. So I would watch on. It seems like things like that tend to be on TV anyway, and they'll have 50,000 people live streaming it. So, yeah, you made a brilliant or several brilliant decisions. Our young scholar in the Bay Area and congratulations on making all of your AP classes and see there that sort of thing. You got young black children trying hard. I want to, you know, challenge myself. Let's get some academic rigor in here. Oh, no, 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 no. Your your tiny Negro brain. We don't we don't want you to tax yourself. Why don't you you know, we got some elementary books. Dr. Seuss. See there. That's what you end up with. Then that again, while a whole lot of black people lose interest with education, reading, really devastating consequences. And another reminder why we should maybe be looking at alternatives, homeschooling, independent schools, something other than, you know. Other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, uh, if you have Thomas in New York. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers, young scholars, everyone else on the line. Um, Standing in front of the plantation, I do want to comment on the... um, solar eclipse i saw you did a show but i generally check my um you know check the facebook thread later in the day to see if you're having a show so i was kicking myself because you know i'm up that early i get off at seven so um i do have a comment on that but that could wait until later um i did um want to commend the young scholar for challenging himself and um i i, I think we all should be doing that uh, all our young people um the guy who died in Greece, Bakari, um, you know, that he was he essentially got killed, was murdered for um, a white female asking him to take a selfie. And um, to me, that was a total Dr. Welding moment. Like, you know, if, if anyone says her theory is pseudoscientific um, BS or nonsense, um, genetic annihilation isn't what this is all about. Then I, I, why did he get killed just for simply a white girl asking him to take a selfie? Um, I went to Whole Foods. You know, they opened up a Whole Foods in Harlem, Gus. And, um, you know, I've been going there quite often trying to eat a little bit more healthier. But um, um, today, my wife picked up some cotton candy grapes. And um, they're actually good, but I'm thinking... You know, this is this isn't right. This isn't normal. These grapes taste like cotton candy. Like what what are they doing to our food? Um and what's gonna happen when they um put the Jolly Rancher flavor in grapes and the now later flavor and they try to sell this to our kids as the healthier and of course we're gonna buy into it because it's grapes, but this can't be right. I'm gonna have to do some research into what the heck they're putting in this stuff. Um but they're good. Either way, um, your Seattle stories, I, didn't, I wasn't able to hear the whole clip because I had to travel to the plantation and the transportation on the weekend is terrible. But um, So I had to leave a little early. But um, your clips um, in Seattle never cease to amaze me. And I always worry about you up there. I say, if something happens, you know, I mean, our only chances of, of, of helping you, man, would be like um, to call Sir Mix-a-Lot or Richard Sherman not too many options up there, you know? Um, um, I don't know if you played the clip, Gus, but did you hear the Andrew Young interview? Andrew Young, the former mayor of Atlanta? The one where he was talking about 
uh, keeping why why we should keep the uh, Confederate monuments? And those poor KKK guys, they're the bottom of the bunch. You know, we need to understand and empathize with them. You didn't see that interview? Oh, my goodness. Well, you, need, you need to watch it. I'm not going to say anything bad about them. Uh, but, uh, oh, man. <laughs> um, the, 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 the guy who does gyneco- um, gynecology, we spoke about him when we did the the book, um, the I believe the Henrietta Lacks book and um, the medical apartheid book. Jay Marion Sims. Jay Marion Sims. Jay South Marion Carolina's Sims. finest. Yes. Yes. Well, the city, the city of New York, is planning to take down his statue, or they're debating whether they should take down his statue. Um, it's becoming a big deal. They're taking down several statues of Confederate soldiers in the Bronx, and I doubt you're going to see any white supremacists go rally up there. Um, they take, but this, um, Christopher Columbus statue is like this golden statue. It's in the middle of Columbus circle. It's a huge tourist attraction. And, um, in my opinion, if they do take this statue down, um, um, they, they, the Christopher Columbus statue as well, they're talking about taking down. If they do take that statue down, I think we'll see all kinds of white race riots, um, in New York city because, you know, that has a huge, um, reminder. But my thing is, why not take down, we do down Christopher Columbus statue, we need to take down the Statue of Liberty. I mean, where are we going to take that down? And um, my big thing is everyone's talking about all these statues that need to be taken down and watching black people in the media, unfortunately, um, voicing their opinion, like, they, like our opinion matters. But either way, no one talks about the money. Um, the white slave masters are all over the money. Thomas Jefferson, white rapists. Uh, we, uh, uh, the $1 bill, George Washington has over 200 slaves. I mean, even Benjamin Franklin has three slaves. Like, uh, we're not even talking about that. Um, and, and I also think if they were to take down all these statues of hate all around the country and find one museum to put it into, that will become the largest tourist destination in America overnight. They could put it in the middle of South Dakota or North Dakota. It will be the biggest place to go. Um, the last thing I wanted to comment on, big deal here in New York this week also, um, the scores came out for the school testing. And um, in particular, as I spoke on the show before, my kids go to a charter school network called Success Academy. And um, in their charter school network, 95% of the kids passed the math test and 83% passed the English compared to the public schools um, 24% passed the math and 29% passed the English. Um, and these are schools, they're picking from the same pool of school kids. The school, the charter schools are in the same building as the public school. They just might take a floor. So it's not like they're getting smarter kids or anything. They do have certain rules where they can get rid of kids. But uh, if my son's still there, um, you know, but I just think that that's such a huge disparity. And the mayor was bragging about these test scores. And I'm thinking, how can you brag about 24% of the kids passing math, the most simplest, like, everyone uses it in the world. It's not even like English, where we're the only... Either way, um, the, the last little tidbit on this was the Success Academy board um, chair. His name's Daniel Lieb. Um, he has a lot of pressure to leave his post, um, including from Al Sharpton, because last week he made a comment about New York State senator, a black lady, 
Cruz Month, because trying to become the first black um, head of the Senate in New York State. Uh, her name's uh, Andrea Stewart Cousin. Uh, he said that um, she's done more to damage students of color than anyone who ever done the hood one. Um, pretty much saying that she's worse than the KKK. And I thought that was very interesting. And I'll be at my line. Thank you, Gus. Indeed. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you have a hand up, line should be open. The other, there seems uh, like there are other hands. Do we have other? Are people spectating, or do we have folks who have a hand up that we've not heard from? Seems they might be at their pre-fight uh, watch parties already. They might have even forgot that they put a hand up. But there are other people with hands up that, for whatever reason, they are. Maybe they're in a loud environment uh, presently. Um, hey, 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 Gus, as I walk through the building, I might drop the signal. So just um, open my line back up because I did want to talk about the solar clips um, later. Oh, just so sure. I that other people, other people watching the fight get, you know, done with it. <laughs> for sure. The eclipse for sure. If there are any folks who got to see the uh eclipse, that would be grand to hear from. I did we did do the broadcast, I think it was Tuesday, the day after the eclipse reporting. I was in uh Salem, Oregon, uh to see the total eclipse. Uh one hundred percent. It was amazing. Uh if there's ever a solar eclipse in your area or even remotely close to you where you have the option of seeing it, you should check it out. Uh oh, and uh Red in Ohio, you asked with the Bakari uh, death in Greece, uh, with his parents doing the interview, they were talking to Gail King on CBS. Gail King is a black female. She asked the opening question about his name and what does it mean and all that. So it was a black female talking to his two uh, black parents in that clip. Uh, other folks that uh, have a hand up that we've not heard from? Uh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, hey, good evening, good evening. Uh... Yeah, about the uh about the clip where the uh where they're talking about the Flint, Michigan environmental racism. This time it was over the air pollution. You know, it just uh it, it just you know, goes to show you how Again, uh, you know, people do all the right things. They they aren't committing any crimes, and when when an injustice is done to them, and they follow the proper procedures, they they get ignored. And uh, as Tom's from New York can tell you as well as I can, because we both live in New York, I mean, there's, we live in areas where there are the highest concentrations of bus depots. And it's been proven that these bus depots, the pollutants these bus depots contribute to asthma in, in the neighborhoods that we live in. So I can definitely relate to these acts of environmental racism, as well as how this 
same neighborhood years ago on a sewage plant. But it eventually came, and the compensation was, well, city officials will build a park around the sewage plant. And for for the first three years, it was really horrible. I mean, you're supposed to go to a plant to enjoy, a park to enjoy yourself, and only to, I said, to smell feces. So definitely, environmental racism is something to be discussed. Also, uh, there's another act of white terrorism that didn't get spoken about like it should have. The same way I feel that the coverage on the white terrorist James Alex Fields has died down and has moved into this discussion on what statues and monuments should remain or go. There's this other white terrorist, uh, Mark Colwell, there were people protesting the death of a black transgender person. And he decides to take his car like James Alex Fields and run over them. And of course, he isn't referred to as a terrorist because he's white and he does not get the charges that he should. And one last thing about these statues. This is another reason why we as black people should not latch on to the labels of I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. All of these statues that people are fighting for, they're named after murderers. You know, whether it's Jefferson Davis, Robbie Lee, Ben Tillman, whoever. Now, why I say we as black people shouldn't get attached to Democrat or Republican labels, if you listen to white people who say they're Republicans, they will tell you they hate everything about the Democrats. They will tell you Democrats are responsible for all the things that are wrong, even in the black community, they will tell you the Democrat mentality is the cause of the problem. Yet, we all know the Confederates were Democrats. The Confederate flag is a Democratic symbol. Yet it is, yet it is these Republicans, these white people who call themselves Republicans, who are the biggest supporters of the Democratic flag, the Democratic Confederate flag, they're also the they're also the biggest supporters of these statues of murderers who are also Confederate Democrats. Now that those things they will they will defend Democratic murderers while complaining about Colin Kaepernick. 
who hasn't committed a crime against anybody. That's all I have to say. Appreciate that, M1. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from, uh, if you have a hand up, the line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. This is Mahandisi. I wanted to make a request to the African Union and the Africans on the African continent that uh, we need help over here in America. The Africans here, the black people here, we're in a dire situation. I know you are also on the continent, but there's around about 2 billion of you on the continent. There's only 50 million of us here on uh, this continent in America. We're vastly outnumbered. These ice albinos, these white people, they're about to do, do a very serious move. And, and if we don't get help, they could kill out the majority. They could kill out a whole lot of us. And we really, really need help. And, and when you hear us talking, we're not just complaining. We're not just telling you that they're mistreating us. We're telling you that they're murdering us. They're murdering all of us, every single one of us, on this continent, on your continent, all over the world. They're murdering every one of us. They're doing it with poisons, as you hear. They're doing it many different ways. They might just, you know, they, they can do it immediately also. But we need your help. We need your intervention. It's not a domestic issue here. It's not just something that the white people here need to, need to handle themselves. Don't leave it up to America to solve it. We need your help. We can also help you. Like I said, there's two billion of you. And we need some serious help out here. Uh, the other thing is, uh, well, just, of course, Africa will be the next superpower. Um, you know, no matter what happens, Africa will be the next superpower. But we all want to live. We want to live long. Uh, thank you. Oh, appreciate that, Mondisi. Uh, uh, there, we have other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from at all. Other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from at all. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Well, peace to Gus. Peace to everybody listening. This is V from Central New York. I am very glad to be joining you tonight. Um, of the many clips that you played, I was moved, uh, very intrigued, actually, to um, hear uh, a clip on, actually, I apologize, I didn't write that one down, but the word tolerance uh, was used a number of times, and this caught my attention. I was doing uh, various things in and out. So I wasn't able to hear the entire clip, but the word tolerance. And the reason uh, this word caught my attention is because I hear it so much in many of the videos that I watch, many of the other podcasts uh, that I listen to, um, uh, even many of the articles 
that I read online or in various newspapers, whenever racism, whenever issues surrounding black people are talked about, not so much transgender, not so much um, LGBTQ people, but when black people are being spoken about, the word uh, tolerance is used often. And I have come to see uh, the word as a weapon in the most literal sense that several years ago, um, the show South Park actually dedicated an entire episode to the idea of tolerance. Now, I'm not talking about TVs per se for this, uh, but I found that weird. And there was one uh, comment that always stood out, that tolerance was something that you did for a child, for a baby. You didn't accept it, though. You were tolerant of a crying baby, but you were not accepting of the crying baby. That was the line that stood out. So we as black people must be very vigilant because we have been living in a state where we have been tolerated. And so now they are moving from toleration to something else. And everybody, every black person, every non-white person needs to be very much aware of this. Somewhat on that note and coming off of that, um, which may be a metaphor, in uh, this week's, in one of this week's um, uh, New York Times, I believe it was uh, August 23rd of this week, a article on page A16 caught my attention. Its title, Police Union Makes Racism Claim. One of the many interesting points in this very short article was um, <clears throat> this paragraph. Later in the video, the narrator says, quote, because I am blue, I am increasingly vilified, unquote. And at one point, another narrator calls for a return to, quote, civil discourse and mutual respect. The screen shows a quote from the Reverend Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., rendered slightly inaccurately, that describes his dream that one day people, quote, will not be judged by their color, but by the content of their character, unquote. Again, the title of the article, Police Union Makes Blue Racism Claim. This article was written about a, a video that the New York PD released where it claimed they were now being subject to blue racism. And I am very glad uh, that one of the callers brought up the idea of black Democrats, or excuse me, white Democrats or Democrats in general. There was another um, article in that same paper titled, quote, GOP Black Waiver in Views on President. Um, it is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating um, article. Again, GOP Black Waiver in Views on President. Um, one interesting note about the uh, entire article, watch the language 
in how they switch from calling black people African-American and black. And finally, the idea of uh, women in the alt-right movement, um, to me, is really nothing new. In the conservative movement, the, quote, neoconservative movement of the late 60s through much of the 70s into the mid-80s, women played a prominent role. They did not much care about the supposed subjugation factor where they were rendered more of a behind-the-scene presence, which is a metaphor, but they were rendered um, as a as a presence which stood behind their men and whispered in their ear while building a social structure which could afflict damage onto black people. They did not care that that was their role. They actually wanted it that way. I see this constantly among uh, white women who I talk to throughout uh, my community. All of them want a day when the man goes to work and they are left home to raise the children. I know that's right. So uh, that is, we, we have to remember, there is no racism without the white woman. I will mute my line. Thank you very much. From that segment on white women in the alt-right, uh, a.k.a. white women's role in white supremacy, I thought it was significant that they said white men, white women, equal power. Different roles, but equal power. I th- think Mr. Fuller has said that for a number of years. Same conclusion that I have come to, uh, that I have come to. White man, white woman, they are equal partners in the system of white supremacy. Other folks that we've not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, this is the um, black caller, the parent of the daughter in Georgia who um, in her classroom saw the uh, Confederate flag. I um, wanted to give you an update on what had occurred after I sent the email. I decided to send the email to the teacher to get see what her response would be, as you suggested. Um, I advised that my daughter was in her ge- geometry class, and I said that she noticed that you have a Confederate flag displayed on your desk. Is there a particular reason why you have the flag displayed in a math class? And I sent it to her around 9.25 a.m. And a little after, at 11 o'clock, she responded back. Um, And what her email stated, good morning. I apologize for any offense caused. It is on a tissue box that Coach Stover had given to me. And she put in parentheses, he teaches social studies. I will be sure to take it down. I just noticed it. I am sorry. So, <laughs> um, my daughter did say that um, she no longer sees the Confederate flag. She now sees uh, the, their regular flag, which I feel both of them are the same thing, but anyway. 
So she hasn't had the opportunity to inspect it because I'm like, well, what does she do? Just spin it around to the other side because um, it appears it doesn't look really different to her. Um, but it's, she said it's hard for her to actually get close to inspect it because the teacher is there all the time at the desk. But um, I didn't respond back to her because um, I did hear on the Thursday call that uh, Paula wrote in to you and suggested that um, I go to the Board of Education superintendent. So that's what I'm thinking about doing. But I don't know. I was going to go to the principal only because the principal is a black female. So um, I don't know if I should just leave it alone at this point. I mean, I've explained to my daughter who and what she's dealing with. And it doesn't matter if the um, box is removed, the flag is removed or not. Just we, just we just need to understand that this is who she is and to, as someone else suggested, to um, make note of what she said and what she said. But I just wanted to call in and let you all know what occurred so far. Thanks. Definitely appreciate the update. Um, I guess... I did want to ask real quick if you went to talk to the principal you said it was a black female I think um, what would you want like would you have a request in terms of how this is handled or would it just be to let her know that this happened I just um, I'm thinking about going to her just to let her know um, what type of teacher she has in her school um, I don't I don't really think anything will really be done, but I just want her to know. Um, I just wanted to see what her response really would be. Cause I wanted to sit down and speak to her. I don't want to talk to her over the phone. I wanted to sit down and just to see what her response would be. Hmm. Because I, I, um, I don't know if she would be, I don't know if she would try to defend the teacher or if she would try to, or would agree with me. I don't know. But I just wanted to, just to let her know this is what happened on the first week of school and where her thoughts are, really. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> right at the beginning of the school year. What a way to start. Um, I, I think uh, what you said about the Confederate flag and the stars and bars in terms of the, the normal U.S. flag that we see all the time, them being synonymous, one and the same in terms of symbols of white supremacy. I think that might be uh, one of the best lessons to make sure that your uh, 10th grade daughter uh, overstands uh, that way. Uh, I think that might be the best logical way to proceed, uh, which is why I think when we were saying before, like, hey, just leave it up. And, you know, we all have our mnemonic for this class in terms of, oh, yes, race soldier, we should be. We should have a high level of suspicion anyway, but hey, it seems confirmed. And that seems like a really lame excuse. She said the social studies teacher gave her this <laughs> Confederate flag and somehow it just ended yes. up loitering on her desk for, you know, weeks on. I mean, come on, man. Come on. Come on. And I was like, oh, well, thank you for letting me. I'm saying to myself, oh, I'm, I'm thank you for letting me know there's another one of y'all in there. <laughs> and this one, he, he teaches history. That's so, oh, wow. so that was interesting how she uh, put it on the other guy. 
they are good for that. And then I guess with him being a history <laughs> teacher, she can say that he was using it in a classroom context. They were having a conversation about yeah, it, blah, 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 <laughs> all of that. But yeah, that's, I mean, racist man, racist woman, uh, right on cue. Uh, and again, we have another great reminder. Uh, what I've said, the conversations about education and what you're going to do with your black child's uh, academic you know, progress for the first 10 years, that should be discussed before you hit the bedroom. Like, you know, this is really, because this is what you're going to be faced with for as long as your child is in school, this is what you'll be faced with. So, I mean, to really think about this in advance, how are we going to handle this? Do we even want to do this? Are there other options? Can we do some homeschooling? I mean, to really think that out in advance, I think that's something that would greatly, greatly uh, aid our efforts to replace white supremacy immediately. Uh, do we have anybody? Can I comment on that, Gus? Just a real short comment. Uh, let's see. Did, does, has everyone bailed for the May? Did we miss anybody? I suspect folks are, are for sure bailing for the fight now. Proceed, Thomas, in New York. No, I just wanted to say, man, social studies has nothing to do with American history. His social studies is... um. Um, like world civilization history, not not American history, um, unless they change the curriculum over the years. So um, I will. I mean, it was almost like she threw the other guy under the bus. Oh, I got it from him, you know. Uh, but very interesting. I, I just don't think social studies and American history are the same thing. They flow together. Oh yeah, that is under the bus is a metaphor, but on there. Uh... Eclipse. I apologize. We're all still learning. <laughs> do, do we? Anybody get to see the eclipse? I know Thomas in New York said he had commentary on that. Anybody was able to see the eclipse? Have any commentary on that? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I didn't get to see it. I saw it on the computer. Even on the computer is kind of compelling. But um, I'm a school started, and I'm a teacher. So the the student kids, these are grown people. The students. They wanted to see the eclipse, and at first I was going to be like, oh, no, we're going to be in class, blah, blah, blah. But I thought, you know, these these are not my my students. They don't look like me. If they want to squander their education, whatever. It was the first day. Um, and then I had one student that came to me because he wasn't there the first day. He was like, well, to be honest, I, I went to drive to look at the eclipse. I was like, well, okay, that's what you did. You know, I don't know what else to tell you. But, I mean, it was you know, kind of breathtaking, not breathtaking, but when you think about the science of it, and, like, I listened to your show the day after, the, the flowers closing and stuff. It really, I mean, if you really think about it, it really is, you know, something, I don't know if necessarily worth investigating that, but just to always be active and learning, and it really does kind of inspire me to do that a little bit more, just, you know, think about things a little more and stuff like that. 2024. Hot Springs, Arkansas, we should be there. We should make lots of progress, homeschooling and everything else between now and then so that either it'll be done and we can really enjoy it or we'll be very, very close, in which case we can still go and enjoy as we continue to work hard to solve this problem. Uh, But 2024, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, Eclipse, other folks, Eclipse commentary. Wow. I would think we would have to have some folks. There was an article that said there were, I mentioned it on the oh. program. I got, I'm, certainly, I got you, Thomas, in New York. Just there, that article that mentioned that there were the path of the eclipse 
uh, covered a lot of states where you don't have a lot of black people. But I would still think since we have, you know, people in so many different places that uh, there would have been other folks who maybe they just they're they're watching the fight. The people who got to see it, they the people who are into those type of uh, extravaganzas, they're they're watching the fight. But uh, I was going to say. A non-white person, he is in school. He was under so much stress. Since we're talking about academics, he was under so much stress because of school uh, at the collegiate level. He was in the path of the eclipse, 100%. He was awake at the time of the eclipse. All he had to do was walk outside, did not do it because he was so upset about school. And I mean, what to hear this the day after I saw it, wow, I could, could we drove, I think it took us about... We had to get up one early in the morning. I think we left at five. We got there at nine. So that was four hours driving on the way there. The traffic on the way back was horrendous. Uh, I think it took us about six hours, maybe even a little more than that on the way back uh, driving. The traffic was just horrible. And they they had been saying that they have all these cool maps uh, where white people showed how bad the traffic was in all the states uh, where the eclipse was. So many people were trying to get out of there, but it was still worth it with 10 hours of drive time for a drive that would normally round trip take about six hours. uh, It was still worth it. It was incredible. Uh, So I cannot imagine if I could have got that by just stepping outside and failed to do so because racists are stressing me so much at school, man. Keep your head to the sky, earth, wind, and fire. Thomas in New York. Yes, can you hear me? Sorry, yes, sir. I muted. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, yeah I, I thought it was interesting because since I started um, becoming more conscious, a uh, huge part of the the African consciousness is um, the cosmology and, and what's going on in the stars and the sun. Um, and so this represented like a new, something new is going to happen, something new is coming, um, or something is ending. And this was the great American eclipse. So I was, you know, just, I, I wanted to go outside. I wanted to invoke some spirits to end white supremacy um, and Americanism, you know, and um, something new starting. Um, but I just thought that um, I went out and I looked. I took my kids. Um, in fact, my, my daughter, um, she went out to a viewing party with, with her friends. And my other daughter, she they started school that day. So she um, and her friends went to the library so they could see it because they had the special glasses to see it there. But I went out and saw it, and I, I didn't use any special glasses. Um, and I said, Hey, I thought ancestors, they didn't have any special glasses. So, um, it did hurt my eyes, but I was glad I saw it. Um, we didn't get the full eclipse in New York. We saw the sun kind of the top on top of the moon. Um, but it was very, um, very, very, um, you know, mind blowing to see. And, um, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, um, that, you know, anyone who used something like this, you, know, you have to pay homage to the sun and the power of the sun. Because, I mean, as soon as that moon moved a little, man, your eyes just, you know, and um, in our ancient cultures, which have been hijacked by whites, you know, the sun is always a metaphor for the sun. The S-O-N and the S-U-N are always the same thing. And um, our ancestors called the living sun Ra, Horus, Heru, Atum, Atim, Kasum, you know, Sunset, Patar, the Sunlight, the Unseen Sun, Apollo, Helios, Sol, Mitra, Zeus, etc. But today, because of white supremacy, 
the bulk of our people pay homage to the sun god of Jesus. And um, we're the first um, ever group of black people to pay homage to a dead son. Jesus is not alive. He died on the cross. All of our sun gods were alive. They were the hero. Um, and um, I just thought that going back to, you know, because I, I mean, I don't think anyone can find a force more greater than the sun on this planet. I mean, I, I would definitely think that uh, white people would definitely agree because they know that they can't take the sun. Um, and we take it for granted, I think. And I just thought that it was very interesting, um, you know, how to, you know, that sun shined its light on us and we, we take it for granted. Like you just said, Gus, um, kid, he didn't even go outside and look at it, you know, due to his studies and things. But um, I, so many people were just like, I don't want to see that. And it was such a beautiful thing to experience. Um, is the next one you said in 2024? You only can see that from Arkansas, or? Um, oh no, that the that's just the next one that I think is going to be visible in the U.S. Now, my friend, he had a broader perspective. He was looking at just you know when the, whenever the next ones will be. I think it's going to be one in South America very soon. Uh, if you want to go down to Argentina or whatever, you can probably catch one way before then. But oh. I think. The next one that's visible in the U.S., I think, is uh, 2024. And the path of that one is pretty long. Like you could I said, you know, I was just partial to the hot springs because, I mean, wow, I've never been to Arkansas and the hot springs for an eclipse. Wow. It could get no better. Uh, But you could watch. You could see it in Texas, Cleveland, uh, like Tennessee. I mean, it's a pretty massive uh, arc. It's going to be on the eastern uh, coast this time, kind of running from Texas, Mexico, all the way up through uh, Ohio. Can I be heard? Uh, hang on one second. Other people that we've not heard from at all, uh, people who dialed in that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. Yes. Was that a female Hello? caller? Oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Thanks. Hi. Um, I saw the eclipse. Uh, I was uh, in Sacramento, so it was a... Um, we had a real good view of it. Seventy-eight percent. So we we had a real Sacramento had a um a nice view of it. So it was cool. It was kind of like um by the time it covered, because you had to have those like those glasses. You could use other glasses too, maybe your if you have some Ray Bans or something. But I think the other glasses made it where it didn't hurt your eyes, and it was neat. You kind of did a crescent moon thing after the overlayer, and I think we had to go out at. Um, going out like 10 and in the a.m. and it started kind of shifting around 10, 17-ish. So it was real neat, and it did a crescent moon um, cover-up. That's what it put you in the mind of, and um, it was a little dark. Um, it wasn't a normal sunny day in Sacramento, so it kind of gave that effect, too. So it was real neat for me. And um, that I just wanted to chime in on the uh, eclipse. And thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. So the next three eclipses uh, will be in the South Pacific and South America. That's in 2019, 2020. Same thing, South Pacific, South America, South Atlantic, uh, Antarctica. These are all kind of difficult. Well, I don't know. South America is not that difficult to get to. You could get down there if you wanted to for 2019, 2020. But the next one, 2024, it'll be on April 8th, uh, will be the next one that'll be visible in the U.S. and the 14 states 
Arkansas, Illinois, and then they have Arkansas number one. So every my view, the hot springs, that has got to be the spot to check this out because that's the first one on their list. Indiana, uh, Kentucky, Maine, Michigan, Missouri, New Hampshire, New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Vermont is the path for the next time around. And looks like Thomas, New York, you could go to Buffalo and you'll be 100%. You can see it all right in Buffalo. Uh, the Before it gets super, super late, the Seattle report where they were talking about the racism in the schools. I did catch where one of the students said that even the biracial students, that if they look darker, they get treated like the regular black people and they just throw them off in the, you know, ruffian class or what have you. No AP classes for you. Uh, if you even if you got a white parent, but you look too dark back of the bus. Um, literally back of the bus talking in the school context. Um, but I thought that was important because that sort of thing to me suggests that if you have a white parent, that is significant. It might not outweigh if you have too much melanin, but if you have a white parent and generally speaking are lighter, you're going to be treated differently. That again, seems to me to strongly suggest it is very significant. If you are a non-white parent, non-white person, but you have a white parent. Other folks we've not heard from at all. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. And uh, I just want to also say that I'm glad that you enjoyed your uh, visit to the spa. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about trying to possibly visit one myself. But to speak on some of the current issues, the first start off, I think that was the the one where they were talking about the environmental, I think, uh, racism or the pollution in uh, black residential areas. And I don't know if anyone like caught on to this. Like, I don't know. I don't know if that was a white person or not. But it seemed like she was being very uh, humorous, like laughing at something real serious. You know, like it came off like that to me. Like when she was uh, talking about the statistics or whatnot and, you know, things that are very uh, severe, like health issues happening to black people. Like she, you know, it seemed like she was, you know, giggling and uh, cackling and whatnot. Um, but when it came to the the uh, recent protests, like for one, I seen an interview on, I believe that was CNN, and they were talking to uh, Donald Trump's uh, supporters, and I noticed they had a uh, melanated black female. Uh, it seemed like they was trying to uh, pick out the stereotypical one, and they kept asking her questions about, you know, is this racism, and were these protests about racism? Uh, and she was just saying she would have to look at all of the details to find everything out. But, you know, I definitely responded with the, the VGQ uh, codification. But what was interesting about it was that it was a, uh, like, one of the voters, it was a white person, he said that it was a Craigslist, uh, I guess, post or ad or whatever that was posted from this Antifa, I guess the Antifa group, that was trying to 
pay people like $30 an hour to come out to, I guess, support them or whatever to do, to do things, I guess, violent acts at, I think that was over in Charlottesville. And, you know, I guess he was, the guy said, I guess it was something he seen on Facebook. And I thought immediately, you know, like they, uh, trying to, um, you know, be deceptive and whatnot, trying to get black people to leave them, uh, lead themselves into doing something criminal. And I'm thinking that because there was another video I seen where there was a, a black male he had on a, uh, I think it was one of those make America great again hats, a red hat. And he was arguing with some of the, um, I guess what they call the, uh, left wing or the Antifa people, the white people. And all of them had bandanas covering their mouths and noses or whatever. So it was pretty much hidden. And like out of nowhere, like this white person, uh, steps behind the black male and starts uh, beating him, um, punching him and whatnot. And, like, this person didn't even get arrested or nothing. You know, so he's pretty much, like, uh, attacked him, like, from behind. I don't even know if this person was with that group, but I'm suspecting it was. So, uh, as it was mentioned before about the violence and that they could be possibly setting black people up, I definitely would agree with that. So, people really should be mindful of what black people, non-white people should be mindful of getting into these uh, protests because it it really doesn't, in my view, uh, solve the issue or even get close to at least having an honest dialogue about um, racism. So that's all I have for now. And uh, thanks for allowing me to share. Good catch on the snickering uh, in the, report that was indeed on something that was serious. I think it's been a lot of that where white people will be talking about black people being abused, killed, whatever it is, and just uh, kind of light, pleasant <laughs> conversation. Uh, not, oh my gosh, this has been happening for centuries and just no no type of gravity to the dialogue at all. And you should, for sure, uh, should check out the, uh, the spa. You will enjoy it. It's great. Uh, Do we miss anybody? Anybody that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Okay, we got everybody. Folks, have, if we got everybody, did folks have additional comment, commentary that they wanted to add? I wanted to also make sure I recognize the folks down in Texas. I know we have Texas listeners. I hope everyone is safe uh, from the hurricane, Hurricane Harvey, I think it is. Hope everyone is safe. Uh, I've already exited. Uh, they said it's supposed to be historic flooding, but uh, thoughts, prayers, uh, cows, listeners, uh, if you are Texas resident yourself or have family, friends, folks that you care about in that area. Any other folks have commentary? Everyone is ready for the fight. We missed yeah, anybody? Yeah, you know, I had a comment. Um, I was talking to one of my coworkers, and uh, he was talking about the fight, of course. Um, he was uh, rooting for McCullough, and I kept telling him, you know, and I don't know if other people share the same sentiment, but uh, out of all sports, you know, boxing to me is always all about race. Um, it, it plays out, you know, um all the time, you know, um, it, I, I just just don't see how a black person could be rooting for a white person to win a fight against a black person. To me, it's just, like, not logical. 
But, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe other people don't see it that way. But, um, you know, just from the, just in the context of Americanism, the American um, historical um, history, um, you know, the boxing has always been a sport that has been all about racism um, and, and conquering the black man and, and hyping up a white person to fight the black man. It's always been that way. Um, so I, I hope, even though I'm not watching the fight, I'm working, but I do hope Floyd wins. Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, reminds me of Mr. Fuller. Uh, if people recall, we read Maya Angelou. That's why I said this has been going on for years. Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling, years and years and years. <laughs> we just keep doing the same thing. Uh, all, we'll all gather around and watch. And that's another thing. I had forgotten all about that. They're talking about getting rid of football. Boxing, for sure, should be gone. Like, man, that is the most barbarous... I, the documentary, I don't know if we played it, the documentary on Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier's third fight. Muhammad Ali won. Joe Frazier's uh, trainer stopped that fight. HBO did a documentary. It's really, really good. A lot about racism. Name-calling black people, big part of that one. Uh, but Joe Frazier's trainer, they asked him if he regretted stopping the fight when he did because when he stopped it, I think about, Three seconds after he stopped it, Muhammad Ali like literally passes out in the ring. You'll, you can, if you watch the film, you'll see him collapse. But uh, they asked him, and he said, uh, "No, I don't have any regret." Immediately, like no hesitation, like he didn't have to think about it. It was, you know, as if you asked him what his name was. But he said, "No, I have no regrets about it at all. I never even gave it a second thought." And they said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, I have watched eight people die in the ring, and I did not want it to be nine. Boxing is the most barbarous thing in the world. We're just going to sit here and." punch each other we might kill someone or have you be brain damaged so you cannot think or talk to your children uh 10 20 years later and particularly to sit around and watch black people do this like oh man <laughs> like if football has to go boxing should have been gone like 10 years ago uh didn't evoke anything non-fight related folks uh had that they went oh i even forgot that was i started that whole thing people in our book club should remember uh because that's why i said we've been talking about this for so long maya angelo I know why the cage birds sing. She talks extensively about Joe Lewis and he was the man heavyweight champion. And we all gathered around to watch him fight Max Schmeling, a white, a German white man at that to fight. They fought two times. Uh, they split one and one. Uh, but she talked about that and how the black people, we wish he would win. And they would all gather around and listen on their rickety radio and hope to, Oh, wait, I think they had to go to the white people's house. If I remember correctly, they had to go to some white person's house who would be kind enough to listen, to let them listen to the Joe Lewis fight. And then I think they were happy because Joe Lewis won. They left the white people's house and kicked up so much noise and all this other stuff once they got away from them. But yeah, that's that. Mr. Fuller said the same thing in fact when I talked to him, but this has gone on for years. Even if the black person wins, we still are under a system of white supremacy. And I am for sure white people are going to do way better for whatever happens this evening than whoever, even if the black person does win. Anybody have anything non-fight related? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Uh, I was just, um, again, I didn't say it earlier, but congratulations to the Young Scholar and pursuing your academic studies. That's, you know, not well going above and beyond, you know, to enrich your own mind for your own knowledge. Um, I remember, it seems like so long ago, I had an incident like that in school when, well, my high school started in seventh grade. 
when in the middle of seventh grade, your teacher decided whether you went to regular honors or advanced honors. I don't. It was all honors, whatever. And so during the semester year, I was doing pretty well on the test. I thought I got high eighties and low nineties and stuff like that. And she came over. And she came over to everybody. Go, you're gonna be in this one. You're gonna be in that one. And then she said, I was gonna be in advance, but on probation. I don't know why she told that to a little black twelve year old girl. I was just not, that was just not the time. And that was my first year going to school with primarily white people and Asian people. Man, I told that lady, oh, I said, what do you think? Blah, 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 this, that, other. So I'm glad he had a more positive response. In my defense, I was 12. But, um, yeah, they try to do that all the time. And pray for me that I have more patience with black people. I'm having some issues with this house and my mortgage broker for some reason. Is not on my side, and I, you know, this, this is a black person, and so, you know, just pray that, you know, I finish out, I'm supposed to move Thursday, woohoo, yay. Wow. Definitely. Uh, moving is not fun. I, I, all of us are working on our anti-blackness, so we're all uh, having the same prayer uh, there. And I hope you're able to get the situation resolved uh, and to do it with, I guess, as much uh, tact and diplomacy and patience in dealing with this black person who has, I guess, not been too helpful thus far. Uh, hopefully you can get that resolved. But, man, I know moving, man, that is no fun at all, particularly under those type of circumstances. Well, the good thing, I'm only moving five minutes away, so. Nice. Yay. Nice, nice. <laughs> Even five minutes can be uh, labor. My masseuse said that today. <laughs> I told her I moved. She said, yep, even moving a short distance, it can be super stressful. Oh, no, I'm, I'm hiring professionals. Oh, good job. I, I'm, by, I'm by myself. I'm Intelligent. I mean, I might think I'm strong, but I mean, that strong black woman stuff only goes so far. <laughs> Intelligent. Intelligent. That's what I should have done. <laughs> Other folks have commentary, praying for the move and patience. Uh, other folks that are listening in have any commentary they want to make sure they got in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, what I would say to... Uh, all black people is that we need more discussion about white people, ice albinos, not existing. We don't need them here on earth. In fact, we need them not to be here on earth. I'm very thankful for the heat wave that recently came. It wasn't quite enough. I think we, we need more heat waves so we can go ahead and, and bring some more heat waves. We need more sun and we need the complete extinction of this group of people, the ice albinos, the white people. We need more people discussing it on your different platforms. We need to talk to more black people that all of these, all of this white people, ice albinos, they are all the problem and they have to leave. Thank you. One of our guests, this was some years back, so if somebody called me on it, it might take me a while. But one of our guests, some years back, he was talking about Florida specific, exclusively. And he said that uh, 
the sun there. They were getting so much sun and it was getting hotter and all everything that they'd been talking about, climate destruction, uh, it was getting so hot and it was driving white people out. And he didn't he didn't have data, right? There was no source to say, well, yeah, white people are leaving. And that's something I have asked about to see if white people are, in fact, vacating Florida. And we do have a significant number of uh, Floridians uh, who are cows listeners. And thus far, none of them have been able to substantiate that whites are fleeing Florida uh, due to uh, raw, raw's intensity, put it that way. Uh, but if we Florida listeners, if you want to check in on that to see if they're fleeing the area or even having discussion about that, whites seeming more concerned about the heat in Florida, let us know. Oh, and I found my report from Maya Angelou, not my report, but the section where she's talking about uh, Joe Lewis's prize fight. And uh, <laughs> I'll just give the last uh, paragraph. This is, again, they had to go uh, to the store and listen to the radio. Uh, and in fact, I crossed my memories. Mr. Fuller was the one when I spoke with him about Joe Lewis, who said that they would have to go to a white person's house and listen on the radio. Uh, Maya Angelo, Dr. Maya Angelo, they had the store, right, in her family where she was at with her uh, grandmother, uncle. They were at the store, so they would go to her, the store to listen to the fights. Anyway, uh, this is like in the middle of the book. She says, uh, champion of the world, a black boy, some black mother's son. He was the strongest man in the world. People drank Coca-Cola like ambrosia and ate candy bars like Christmas. Some of the men went behind the store and poured white lightning in their soft drink bottles. I'm sure there's a whole lot of that going on this evening. And a few of the bigger boys followed them. Those who were not chased away came back blowing their breath in front of themselves like proud smokers. Sobriety would be best. It would take an hour or more before people would leave the store and head for home. Those who lived too far had made arrangements to stay in town it wouldn't do for a black man and his family to be caught in a lonely country road on a night when joe lewis had proved that we were the strongest people in the world and i will stop there i know why the caged bird sings we read it in its entirety in the book club 2014 uh, weeks after dr angelo passed away but yeah this is long going all of the commentary and racial commentary that's going to be broken down about this fight it's reams of it in the libraries been so many of these fights over the last year probably be more of them coming as long as the system of white supremacy exists uh any other commentary folks need to get in may i be heard oh please go on go ahead Oh, all right. Thank you. Um, this is Red from Ohio again. Um, I just wanted to uh, quickly comment because it was one thing that I, a few things that I actually forgot to comment about the clips. Um, when it came to environmental racism, I may be thinking of this incorrectly. I, I know when I think about environmental racism, I think about, you know, the water, or the air, things like that. But then I also feel like if a person is put in a, uh, a filthy situation, like a, um, like, I'm basically referring to um, I was actually helping somebody move, and I'm not too happy about that. But um, the person, they were, it's a, it's a non-white person. They were supposed to be moving into government-subsidized housing, and I just didn't know how bad it was until we got there. And um, got there, you know, stuff is, you know, broken down, and they made the person sign their lease before they could even look at the apartment. Not sure how legal that is, but it happened. And as we're looking around, the most atrocious thing that I saw was 
the refrigerator was full of dead roaches. And I was just thinking like, how, how was this possible that you expect people to raise their children? And I understand that people are, are homeless, I guess, you know, bugs outside, bugs inside. It doesn't make a difference, but it's like, you know, you're supposed to, I, I guess I'm just, you know, being too hopeful, but it makes me kind of angry that um, white people, they always like to feel like, or they'll mention, well, you know, we're giving you all these different things. You know, we're giving you food stamps, we're giving you housing, we're giving you all these things that you don't deserve. But just looking at what they're giving us non-whites is, is, is deplorable, to say the least. And it did also make me feel grateful for the two nickels that I do have to where I don't have to, you know, necessarily ask the government for for help um at least right not not right now and hopefully not ever um i just wanted to comment that on that thank you wow that is standard and has been for <laughs> along with the fights centuries centuries uh of racism white supremacy and worldwide uh, a lot of that is in the warmth of other suns uh, where they would just pack warehouse black people in the worst part of town and dilapidated housing and no upkeep i mean man i, I hope your friend is moving to far exponentially better uh, living arrangement than where she uh, currently is. I mean, wow, that's that's why this problem needs to be solved immediately. Uh, Oh, the mail caller who uh, yielded the floor. Thank you kindly, sir. Did you have commentary? Yes, sir, I did. Thank you very much. Uh, This is me from uh, New York again. Uh, on the living situation, um, that is horrible, just horrible. Um, there is one historical point uh, that I always remember when I look at situations like that, and I, I took it from Dr. John Hendrick Clark, when, when he was explaining the history of Europe, he said, how could we expect them to accept us when they treat each other? so barbarously. And that is a very important uh, important point that I think we sometimes forget. They don't treat each other humanely. How do we expect them to treat us humanely? Um, And actually, uh, I was going to make another comment, but uh, things are getting a little bit loud, so let me um, mute and if I have time I'll come back there it is the fight fans <laughs> we are not interested in counter racism uh, this evening it is want to see a fight somebody get knocked out uh, last few moments before we uh, conclude uh, it has been um, difficult with the scheduling so hopefully we can compensate for that as we proceed uh, I'll just have to update as I get notifications about makeup programs for everything that we missed over the time that my back was uh extraordinarily difficult but things are improving so we should be back to normal normal schedule you just have to stay tuned and i will update as we go first order of business is to get our rain date with pam uh that might be yeah (laughs) we can get pam on the program i'm looking forward it's been a while since we've talked to her uh, earlier this year uh she had uh some health situations and i had a health situation but i think both of us are straight now and we will see when we get her back here uh asap uh other commentary folks needed to get in yeah, I wanted to say that um, they do talk about 
Um, I haven't heard anything about them leaving uh, Florida anywhere yet, but they do um, talk about this all the time. They just use coded words to talk about what they're talking about. So they'll use words like um, global warning or um, depleted ozone layer, or they'll use words like sustainable living. And anytime you hear that, that that's directly talking about um, dealing with the climate change or, or the, the, the sun's intensity um, being more intensified. So they do have um, words um, that they use to describe them, and you'll find a lot of them if you um, Google Agenda 21 or the Green Agenda, things like that. Those are, um, those are the, the terms that they use, they're using to describe the, the sun's intensity becoming more than what they can take. However, they don't say it that way, of course. They, they're using coded language. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that. It, a lot of that here in Seattle. That is one of their favorite topics uh, around these parts. Uh, absolutely. Anything else folks need to Hello? Mention? Yes, ma'am. Hi. I'm sorry I keep timing in. But, um, you know, we talk about sobriety. There was, I guess this is, well, I'm guessing, there is a PSA about, you know, for young people to not drink. And that's wonderful. In this commercial, or PSA, there are three, three young people, one white girl, one white guy, and could be Hispanic or definitely, he's obviously not white like the other people. So, of course, he gets to be the driver. And they're like, yeah, 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 drunk, yeah, yeah, you know, or whatever. And so, bam, they get caught. And, of course, who goes to jail? The non-white driver. I don't, it was just as clear as they. I'm not a drinker. You know, of course, you shouldn't drink. But hint, hint, they will get you every time. Because they will talk, yes, you can do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And... Clear as day, they talked him into it. He got caught. She said, the man's going to kill me. But she's on the side of the road, and he has the mugshot. I mean, it was very clear. <laughs> wow. That's, that's our PSA for not drinking. I guess we're comfortable seeing non-white people uh, on probation and arrested and all that that's how we're comfortable thinking about and talking to non-white people so you know but sobriety would be best that notwithstanding sobriety would be best even this evening if you're out and about i've been you know mentioning but if you're at some sort of event or what have you and people are intoxicated or even if you're intoxicated i say this consistently sobriety would be best but if you gotta consume get someplace and stay there uh, i hope you made a rent or you can use uber a lot of alternatives but uh really make an effort to minimize being in a vehicle uh, i just talked to a different non-white person he was at a wedding uh, just this summer this month in fact he was at a wedding they typically have alcohol there he consumed not you know you shouldn't get the death penalty or what have you right i've been to a wedding before and had a drink myself uh but he got in the car, still non-white, and got stopped by the police. And then it's got to be, you know, we got to pray and call on the ancestors and everyone to hope that you get through this. He did that time. But I mean, discretion. You do not want to put yourself in, really, in my view, you don't want to put yourself in that position at all. That could have been Daniel Holt's claw, anything uh, with those type of, even if nothing goes bad other than you do get a ticket for the DUI. 
thousands of dollars. You could use lose your license, your job. I mean, just oh my God. If you gotta consume, plan that in advance so you know there's no way I'm gonna be in a position of driving where racists could really inflict some harm on me long term. Uh, I either I'm gonna be here or I got my my lift or whatever I'm gonna do. However, already we got it worked out. Gotta be huge. Non-white people cannot afford to take risks like that. Uh, any final comments, folks? Satisfied? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much. This is V from New York again. Things have kind of calmed down. Um, quickly, uh, I do not. Well, I don't watch boxing. I don't care about boxing. Truthfully, to be honest with you, I didn't know that this fight was coming up until Friday, um, but I do have um, <clears throat> white persons around me who are young and college-aged and um, enjoy Saturdays and Fridays for uh, drinking purposes, and therefore, well, they make a lot of noise. Um, I just finally wanted to um, say that um, in the realm of self-care and self wellness uh, this is something that, first and foremost, Gus, I must admit, uh, what happened to your back, it, it has really sort of uh, focused, uh, made me focus more on that because I was, I'm, I'm 35 years old, and um, just recently I discovered I have high blood pressure. My father died at the age of 56 from a massive heart attack. He had high blood pressure from his mid-30s up until that point. So um, really rearranging my diet and um, taking better care of myself is becoming uh, much more important to me. Uh, but also, over the last two years, I've sort of brought myself into this interesting experiment. Uh, two years ago, I started listening to jazz music um, more frequently. And I did, I, I listened to just about, a, to, to jazz just about for a year. And then I kind of switched back over and went back to more of the pop and R&B music that I, I listened to when I was a child. And then I went back to jazz music. And what I noticed was when I listened to jazz music, I was much more upbeat. I was uh, much more clear-headed. Um, I slept better. I, I was more energetic. But when I listened to the pop and the R&B, the exact opposite happened. And I, I think sometimes we underestimate the importance of music, but we as black people are musical people. We are from Africa, and we lived in Africa for millions of years. And that is part of who we are. So um, if I could just encourage every person, especially younger people, to really move a little bit into the jazz, move back into the young earth, wind, and fires, and, and those who tapped into our roots. Uh, it, it's fascinating how it does change you and how it, it, it makes you almost more complete with this type of music. Um, specifically, I noticed with the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there is sort of a renaissance happening presently with a younger jazz um, generation, generation that is trying to go back to the room. So I don't know um, who all listen to that, but, you know, there's an, an offering for me. Thank you very much, Gus. I'm so glad your back is feeling better. Um, peace to you. Peace to everybody who's listening. 
Indeed. Uh, thank you for the concern and listeners. Uh, lots of concern from folks over the past few weeks. Um, yeah, that is <clears throat> self-care. Super, super important. And because the assault is just relentless, that if you're not being poisoned in your living environment, we heard about the uh, refrigerator situation, dastardly. The toxins in the air, Melissa Harris-Perry talked about that before. We had that on the program tonight, all the damage that Exxon is doing, the food. I mean, it's just endless. I don't know if cotton candy grapes are in that, but it's just endless. So, I mean, really uh, making that like a primary uh, area of focus uh, for black people, especially uh, self-care and just things to really take good care uh, of our health. I know that's one Dr. Kanban uh, talks about all the time. I think he's emphasized repeatedly when he's been a guest on this program that part of that battle is is on your plate, things that you're choosing to eat, what you're putting, what you're choosing to put in your body and how you take care of your body. Very, very important. And on Gus T's list that I would recommend, forget that helping out with moving. <laughs> you can get other people or what have you, but that is ridiculous. I am uh, not moving even a hat box in the future. Uh, with that, uh, we will wrap things up. Uh, we should be here. Uh, as I said, I just have to check with our reschedules to see uh, when we can start plugging in some of the programs that uh, had to be moved. Uh, just check the Black Talk Radio Network page, the Facebook page, and it will programs will be posted their dates and times uh, at least a day in advance. You can drop an email as well until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail.com. My email did get very behind uh, because I just wasn't able to uh, function as normal, but uh, that is something I'll be working on, catching up on as I am feeling better. Uh, Thank you for your patience in that regard as well. That's it. If Feel free. Uh, If you sent an email and didn't get a response over the last couple of weeks, that is why. Feel free. If you want to just drop the email again, send it again, re-forward it, whatever the case. Uh, Not a problem. Not a issue uh, at all. If you can't find something in the archives, I know even some of the programs I was not able to upload in a timely manner because of the pain that I've been in. But uh, those will be getting taken care of over the next couple of days. So if you have a question about any of those or something else in the archives, just drop us an email until justice at Gmail. Uh, With that, have fun. Uh, If you're at a viewing party, or I guess make sure there's no conflict, like our young scholar in the Bay Area, sobriety would be best. And if you are going to consume, make sure that you have a code for how you're going to make sure that there there are no unnecessary additional problems as a result of the intoxication. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.